Good evening, Paul. Hey, Chris. How you doing? I'm doing well. Yourself? Pretty good, thank you. Say uh, hi to Dr. Bill, my uh, cohort, cohort and co-host. Oh, hello, Dr. Bill. Oh, hi, Chris. <laughs> how you been? I'm, I'm all right. I'm on spring break for my teaching jobs. So that's nice. Uh, just happy, honored to be on again. Thanks for having us on again. Uh, it's, I'm, I'm very happy that you guys are available to do it. I had a great sure. time last time. And I'm, I'm particularly happy now that you guys are on Skype and we can yes. have a much clearer conversation. Absolutely. The problem is there's just not enough hours in the day. Yeah. But, oh, if, yeah. but, if, but if I could have a comic shop to go to after I finish my day's work... I don't think my kids would ever see me. Yeah, well, that, that's I, that's why I have a manager now because in the old days when I, before I had kids, I went there every day, but that's not possible now. So, you know, maybe someday the store actually makes real money, <laughs> and then I can spend <laughs> more time there. But you know, that's 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 a challenge in itself. Yeah, I do have to hit the store one day though because I'm really curious to check it out, and hopefully I'll you know if I do I'll I'll give you a heads up and I'll try and work it out at a time when you're there so I could actually oh. say hello in person. Please do, or or if you can, come on our free comic book day. I, you know that that that's crossing my mind right now yeah. because I I already know we already bought our tickets for Avengers two for the night before. Yeah. Now the the question is, I'm I'm in with a group of guys. I'm a big uh, baseball fan. Yeah. And I'm in with a group of guys who are getting a full season ticket for the Mets. Oh, and wow. it's possible. I I only end up with six games out of a full season, so it's not yeah. really that big a deal. Okay. But they're going to split up the tickets, and it's possible that I'm actually going to have. The game on May second, in which case I'll hit Free Comic Book Day near here, of and course, then go straight to City Field from there. That makes sense. But on the other hand, if I don't have the Met game, then I have a little bit more time because I think you're about oh, like an hour and change from me. So it's not you know I can't just do it at the drop of a hat. But I, but where, it's, where, but where, where do you live? Where, where do you live again? Nassau County in Long Island. Okay, yeah, it's it's at least that. Yeah. Well, I'll be there on that day, and we're having a huge event. So if you can, please join us. For anybody listening, why don't you tell them what your plans are for Free Comic Book Day, and who knows, maybe you'll get some uh, people down. Okay, great, thank you. Yeah, we're doing, uh, so on May 2nd is obviously Free Comic Book Day, as you know, I'm sure most listeners are aware. And in addition to having you know, a full complement of, of the bulk of the titles coming out on Free Comic Book Day, we're having an enormous sale. So we're going to have uh, 50% off all of our, our new trade paperbacks, uh, 25% off all of our used stock. So that means our 30,000 50 cent comics will now be 25% off of 50 cents. And our large selection of used trades will be 25% off their already low prices. And then we're going to have 10% off our already below guide priced, uh, let's call them higher end back issues. And we have um, a very large raffle at approximately 3 p.m., where it's a dollar per ticket. You can buy as many tickets as you want. You can put as many tickets as you want into any item's cup. And we're going to have, you know, IDW artist editions up for that raffle. We're going to have Batman black and white statues. We're going to have uh, other statues, action figures, uh, omnibuses, Marvel and DC, all kinds of stuff. So and actually the crown piece of the raffle will be the Alex Ross uh, Joker and Harley Quinn statue. Oh, the full nice. fi- so you, know, you could conceivably win that for a dollar. So. Wow. So this, this this is basically the famous wild pig sale that I've heard so much about. Yes, this is another version of it, and um, we're doing it on Saturday and Sunday, 12 to 6. The raffle's only on Saturday, uh, but we're going to have the sale both days, and uh, it's it's always a great time. Uh, I think Pants is going to be there. I think Murd's going to be there. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. So that's 14 well, South Michigan Avenue, Kenilworth, New Jersey, wildpigcomics.com. 
Will uh, Pants, of course, have 52 tickets? <laughs> he will indeed, sir. Um, <laughs> he will He will go after every single artist edition I probably have up for that <laughs> raffle. And he's actually implored other people to bid so he doesn't win everything. So... <laughs> But uh, yeah, he'll, 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 he'll have his 52 tickets, if not more. Back to the bin. Hello? Adam! Ah, good. My voice is heard. Excellent. Hello, brother. How are you doing, Chris? Uh, it's good to hear your sonorous tones again. <laughs> yes, it is. How you doing, buddy? Hi, Paul. How's it going? Ah, Paul, going I was told there would be no big words. <laughs> it's it, not for nothing, and that's probably... I'm teasing, I'm teasing. It's impossible Hi, to invite Adam on and not have big words. Oh, oh Chris, too. He, he can hold his own. <laughs> I can't help tone? myself. Indeed, indeed. Fellow thesaurian through and through. <laughs> Thank you, sir. <laughs> yeah, actually, as as I was preparing my synopsis, I started thinking about, uh, you know, is 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 that is that said in a sophisticated enough way to have a guy like Adam and and or have guys like Adam and Chris on here, or am I dumbing it down just a little ah, too much? Just just be yourself. Come on. Exactly. Well, then I'm dumbing it down. <laughs> It's it's it's. I'm glad we were able to finally come up with a time that we could uh, get together again. Absolutely. Yep. Sorry for the long delay, but uh, no, we 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 in uh, CGS land had quite a few uh, well, uh, the things to get through uh, between our 10th anniversary celebration and then a few of us went to London for a little while. Right. So right. I'm, I'm, I apologize. It's it's entirely. Uh, it, 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 it's on us that it's taken this long for the, the thing. Uh, you know what? I, I I can't argue with the 10th anniversary and going to London over coming on uh, Back to the Bins. <laughs> really uh, not quite the same ballpark there. How how was London? Uh, London was nice. Uh, convent- yeah, well, it was for the, the London Super Comic Convention, you know. Right. And I know you did the wrap-up show, but I haven't listened to it yet. Okay. Well, it it was well, a good convention, you know, like like well, a lot of conventions these days, since they are a boom business. Uh, it, it's getting bigger every year, better attended. Um, uh, that, that was pretty much all we got to see of London. Though we we were just there to do the show, didn't uh, do any touring, didn't even get a chance to you know go out and find a decent restaurant anyplace. We were just at the convention center the whole time, and then we went home. Do you uh do you have a lot of London or British listeners? Um, a good number, yeah. Uh, it's probably the country uh, where we have the second highest listenership next to these United States. Uh, and we had a panel over there, and we had, uh, I don't know, maybe 40 people come to, 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 to see that at the, at the convention. So we, we were happy with that. Well, that's pretty cool. So what did they pay? Your airfare, your hotel? Um, <laughs> uh, well, uh, none of the above, really. Did uh, they let you into the convention at least? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you never pay for the table. And uh, I got a... Uh, I didn't have to buy a badge either. Um, uh, as far as I had to pay my own airfare, uh, but uh, the two Bryans got their own hotel room because they were actually working you know, for the convention. So they, they, they earned that by the sweat of their own brow, and I just kind of got to be the parasite uh, oh, sleeping cool. on the, uh, mooching off of their free room. Hey, nothing wrong with with a, with a nice mooch in the right in the right situation. I tried to be a nice mooch. <laughs> Much better than the other kind. 
Well, I guess I will be the mooch-er when I come up to your place in June, and you'll be the mooch... No, I'll be the moochie. You'll be the mooch... You will be the moocher, and I will be the the moochie. And uh, just just to let you guys know... Well, first of all, Adam and Bill, I don't think you guys have met, so Bill is one of my regular co-hosts on the show, and you know who Adam is. I I just waved. What? (laughs) Your waving is good on on Skype. (laughs) Well, I'm a little awestruck because Adam is one of... uh, my first podcasting listening was through Comic Geek Speak and then spread out to other things and then got involved with with Two True Freaks and Paul and Scott and Chris and everyone. So I'm a little – that's why I'm not speaking as much as normal because I'm, I'm just so used to listening to you guys. So I forget I'm here, <laughs> it's, I guess. Well, that's flattering. Quiet, no. <laughs> so, oh, just – Chin up. I, I, I get pretty easily tongue-tied when we do interviews on the show, too, which is one reason why we really don't do very many of them anymore. But, yeah, it's, it's conversational here. We're, yeah. we're, well, we're just well, Paul and I are like the Abbott and Costello of Two True Freaks. Yeah, of pretty course, much. I, I'm the large one. Well, I'm, well, I'm not that <laughs> tiny myself, but I do get a Bud Abbott kind of smack going every once in a while. Okay, well, so I love a good I love a good Abbott and Costello routine. So Chris can be uh, the 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 Wolf Man, and I'll be the Mummy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, there we go. Meeting us in this episode. Just to, to clue you guys into what we were talking about earlier, though, uh, June thirteenth, there's a uh, con literally five minutes from me in Long Island called Eternal Con, and we have a bunch of two True Freaks listeners coming up, and we're gonna all uh, invade the con together. So uh, if, if either of you is so inclined, you, you would be more, more than welcome to join us. That's called an t- Eternal Con? Eternal Con, yeah. Is it a one-day show or two-day? It's actually a two-day. It's Saturday and Sunday, but uh, our plans are to hit it on Saturday. Is it, is it a big show? No, not really. Uh, okay. It's, it's over at, uh, they, have the, they call it the Cradle of Aviation Museum. Okay. And it's two, two floors, and it, I mean, it's... It's not tiny, but it's not huge either. One of the nicest things they've had, this is the third year they're having it, and one of the nicest things they've had is they have a guy who has his own personal collection of movie props, mm-hmm. which is uh, particularly focused on the original Planet of the Apes. Ugh. And he brings it and he set, you know, they set it up and you can kind of check out all these masks and costumes and props and everything and it, i i think it's really really cool especially if you love those movies the way i do oh i love planet of the apes god no i was wondering if so, so a show that i'm worth for me to do be a vendor at actually um oh, you may you, i mean i don't know if you want to it's if you go i mean it's eternalcon.com so you yeah, can I'll, always I'll check it out I'll check, check it, it out. out and see if it's something yeah. you're interested in and if it is and there's anything i can do to kind of help you along you know just just reach out to me and i'll do what i can for you oh thank you sir appreciate that Anyway, back to uh, podcasting 101 here. Uh, just uh, to, by way of uh, comic talk, what are you guys reading lately? Uh, Adam, you can go first. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm really not, uh, not reading much at the moment. I'm buying as much as ever, but uh, just not finding time to actually read it, which is why my, uh, my, back, my back reading pile has gotten as uh, you know, titanic as it has. Um, <laughs> it keeps the time, bu- time bubble going. Uh, I, if I, I was going to say, aren't you? Episode. Yeah, you're still stuck back in the '90s, aren't you? For merch? Uh, no, I've I've, uh, I've managed to extricate myself from the '90s. Uh, I'm up to 2002. Ah, does that uh, does that mean you've you've totally done away with? Uh, if I remember right, it's the like Diedenbach or whatever 
Uh, oh, the Diefenbach collection. The Diefenbach collection, yes. That, that's not even a part of the regular reading rotation. That's that's just a box of older back issues my dad bought for me at a yard sale that were contained in an old uh, potato chip box. Um, yeah, so I've, I dip into that every once in a while if I'm looking for a particular issue from like an early 80s uh, Fantastic Four or Avengers run. But uh, uh, beyond that, it's of uh, you know, limited use or uh, uh, relevance. Um as far as stuff that I'm, I, I've, I've spent a lot of time reading John Byrne Fantastic Four comics lately, uh, and that's uh, it was for a spotlight episode we did. Uh, yeah, I'm I, waiting for three three hours free so I could sit and listen to it straight through. <laughs> I just listened to it Monday. I had three hours free at work. I so. hope that ma- I hope that made work uh, pass easier, sir. Oh yes, yes. Good, excellent. Yeah, for me the best time for shows like that is, uh, you know, for my job I travel to various locations and. Uh, the best time for me is when I have a long ride and pop it in and, and listen to it on the way, and it's gr- it's great company for a long ride. Oh, absolutely! Before I was actually a, a member of the show, and I was just listening to it when, I, when my then fiance, now wife, was living in upstate New York. I would travel up there most every week for about two hours there and back, and the show was a, a constant companion. So it, I definitely vouch for how much it eases travel. Oh yes, that's the one that Mr. Deemer is obsessed with, correct? Yes, he is. <laughs> yes, he is. We have a, a playful. Uh, rapport over that so i I take it as as a as a badge of honor (laughs) so uh, i'm reading to answer your query i'm i mean i get so many books because i own a shop but i can't i can't possibly read everything regardless because of just of time but let's the books i always make sure i do read every month and and you know i talk about these ad nauseum on the air is you know saga lazarus sex criminals um thief of thieves uh let's see uh new avengers Avengers, Captain America, Daredevil, which I think is one of Marvel's best books, Silver Surfer. Um, anytime Garth Ennis comes out with something like his war stories, just I read that. Uh, let's see. Conan. Cal? Uh, Cal, very much. I love Cal. Thank you. Uh, all the new Star Wars comics have all been great so far. Um, and then there's a lot of other stuff that I, I wish I could read, but I'm just way behind on. Those, those are a lot of the books that I make sure I get done. Thor is another that I, get, I make sure I get done every month. Now you are you reading uh, Star Trek: Planet of the Apes? Oh, thank you. Yes, I'm loving that. Yeah, I'm, I'm really that. enjoying that as well, and that's the, one we're we're planning on doing a spotlight episode of our own once that's concluded. Yeah, the 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 Tiptons really capture the voices of those characters really well. And and you know, for for all the uh, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> that's so annoying. For 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 all the. Planet of the Apes comics that I've read over the years, this is the first one other than an adaptation of the first two movies where I've seen the character of George Taylor in it. Yeah, I think you're right. Hmm. Yeah, Yeah, because he he wasn't any of the stuff Boom did because that was long before he landed on the planet. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, because he was in the Marvel stuff back in the 70s and they, they didn't have the rights to draw his face. It doesn't even look like him. But that's so. that's when they were doing the adaptations, as opposed yeah, exactly. to doing yep, any yep. any new material with the character. Yeah, like those goofy, fun black and white magazines from the seventies. I love those. Oh, they're great. <laughs> uh, yeah, we did an entire month on all the uh, all the different brandings uh, from different companies. Was that last last summer? Yeah, that would have been Apes like month? around June, June maybe. July? Oh, we yeah. did Planet of the Apes month. I'll have to listen to that because that that's an ambitious endeavor on your part. Wow. Well, yeah, we, we, well, we did Marvel. Uh, we did Marvel. Boom. Uh, there's two others. Was what it, was the uh, uh, Dynamite? D- 
I don't remember no, now. There was uh, one that only put out six issues. That was the entire. That was, run. The, that was, was that the Mister Comics run? I think so. Yeah. Wow, I don't remember that. That's impressive. Wow. <laughs> and that was the tale of uh, what happened after um, uh, the one with Caesar. What was that? Shoot. After after well, that, uh, that battle, was, uh, battle, 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 battle. Oh, no conquest. Yeah. No. Excuse me. Conquest. Right. What immediately took place after that? Yeah. Well, there was that one one issue that was particularly like uh, I don't know, kind of chilling about what was going on during the revolution in in conquest when you know the the apes that were house apes would be like killing their masters oh, at yeah. home and stuff and it was just kind of there was the one really well drawn shot I remember where he walks into the room and you was see it like the, one the, with apes the doctor and the... smiling mm-hmm. and the ape killed him with the letter opener yeah. It's good. I mean, spooky, but good stuff. I'll have to read that. I would definitely recommend most of it. I would recommend. I mean, some of it gets really goofy. We we were talking about like the Marvel series, and eventually they get to like uh, a, a place where the apes have uh, taken on like the Davy Crockett persona and stuff. I remember that in the magazine. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely got a little silly at times, but it's still a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Was it was it now comics? Was that the other one? That was the one that had the alienation cr- crossover. It was that, that sounds right. Yeah, because I covered one of the alien or ape nation. It was the first uh, was with alien nation and the apes, which was a weird title. Definitely, definitely some stuff off the beaten path. <laughs> but uh, we might as well uh, keep moving along and uh, sure. jump into our comics. And sounds uh, good. Now, just just to to clarify things, because kind of Chris, you and I kind of went the same way on this. Uh, Generally, we do Marvel, DC, independent. But my definition of independent doesn't necessarily mean that it can't be published by Marvel or DC. It, as I define it, it's a book that does not take place in the proper universe of those two main main companies. Mm-hmm. So, like, if, you know, we, you and I both picked Vertigo books. Uh, yours is kind of more mainstream because you're... you're uh, the, the character of Prez technically was part of the uh, the greater DC universe at one time. So I'll, I'll be considered the indie, and I'll consider you the DC for today. Fair enough, fair enough. Although, although the Prez, I think, Adam, didn't they establish the Prez was the president, not though in the main, he wasn't a president of Earth-1, correct? Uh, well, he did encounter Supergirl that one time. Okay. Yeah, that, that's the only actual crossover that I can recall. So was that pre-crisis Earth-1? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> that was that was in the early seventies. Yeah. Okay. That's right. Uh, Paul. Paul. Uh, I I was told there would be no parallel Earths this time. Yeah. <laughs> good, good luck with that. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. The, the way things are now between Marvel and DC, there's nothing but parallel Earths. Yeah. <laughs> oh yes. Uh, uh, what do you guys? Uh, I guess. The, yeah. Coherent thought. Here it comes. What do you guys think of? Um, Chris and Adam of Secret Wars that's coming up, the supposed destruction or mashing of the um, the Marvel Universe. It sounds a lot like, oh, I don't know, Crisis. <laughs> well, not not in the the whole mythology thing, but with they're they're trying to just consolidate things, or I don't know. It seems like they're kind of rehashing something that's already been done. But well, then again, that's been happening a lot lately, so. Mm. Well, it, it does seem that Marvel is trying to guide our uh, our thoughts and perceptions in that direction right now, pretty overtly. In fact, it's, uh, they're kind of encouraging you know comparisons between this thing and Crisis. 
Um, you know, whether or not it's going to turn out to have the same kind of implications as Crisis, I don't think it's being done for quite the same reasons as Crisis was. I'm a little mm-hmm. disappointed that Marvel is doing it in the first place, since for some times they practically boasted about the fact that they never had to do a full-on reboot of their continuity and a retooling of their history and the structure of their universe. And and now they're doing something that, that kind of threatens to be that, and I'm not sure I even want to see Marvel attempt it. Uh, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm trying not to. Lots of people have been asking me this question lately. You know, be since crisis is kind of a thing with me. Um, but uh, my, my my general answer is, eh, I, we we don't really know what Secret Wars is going to be until it happens. So let's just mm. sit back, wait and see what they actually do, and then start complaining about it. I echo Adam's sentiments. Um, I mean, Bill, your point is well made because it seems that that's the direction it's going in. They, and I, like Adam said, they, I think they definitely want you to think that. Right, mm-hmm. right, right from the, co- the the cover they've shown you for Secret Wars one. Uh, so, you know, it remains to be seen if that's really the direction they're going to go. Um, but you know, it's clearly Hickman's been building this up now for literally for years in Avengers. So I have a lot of faith in him as a writer. So I'm interested to see what he actually does with it um, in terms of the greater ramifications f- for it. Well, you know, we'll see. I mean, there's been so many events that have been done and undone throughout the the history of comic superhero comics in particular that. I kind of take all that with a grain of salt, but mm. yeah. Well, go ahead. I'm sorry, Paul. I was just gonna say, like, like it does seem strange that they want us to think it's gonna be a crisis-like thing. Yeah. When they have made such a point of saying that they don't do that, so I wonder if they're gonna pull some sort of a fast one at the end and not make it a crisis-like thing and say, yeah, we don't do that. It's possible. Or just a way to get all their current characters back to status quo. Um, with as much as they've just tried to change things recently, and that I mean, I'm sure you would know more sales-wise how the how well or how poor they've done, um, Chris. In terms of how well newer books are selling, mm-hmm. well, you've raised a good point because, like, take take Sam Wilson as Captain America, which I'm really enjoying. You know, he's not going to remain Captain America, so no. <laughs> you know it it. it, it it, it for me, I mean, I just tr- kind of kind of put that aside now and just kind of enjoy it for what it is because you know that's not going to stay, um, especially if they have movies coming out. So, um, in terms of sales, I, I mean, granted, our, our uh, my store is is a smaller store compared to stores in the city, for example. But you know, our, our new comic sales are are just shrinking in, in terms of becoming, uh, in terms of how important they are to our overall operation. I mean, we still we still have more reservists, Frank, than I thought we would ever have, which is nice, but. In terms of people just kind of randomly walking in and buying new books off the wall, you just don't see much of that. They're too damn expensive. Yeah. Um, and you know, if you're if you're trying to encourage a new reader, they're just as likely to go to a trade paperback as they are to a, a random floppy comic. Mm. So, you know, I all the different changes, I quote in changes that you go on in the superhero books. You know, like Wolverine dying. Yeah, like he's really gonna stay dead. I mean, it's just. <laughs> It, I mean, I get part of it because I'm, I'm older. I've been reading books since I was a little kid. It, it, after a while, you just—it's it, not that I'm jaded. It's just that you know, you're just like I just don't care anymore. Like, all right, I'll read something else because I know this is not going to stick. And uh, there are certain characters like Shane will talk about how we'll read Justice League even if it's a turd because it's Justice League. <laughs> and there are certain books, t- characters. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll probably always read them or at least always come back to them because I just enjoy those characters. But you know, like the. The feeling of, of excitement about, like, wow, how much, like, I, I try to imagine, like, reading the Dark Phoenix saga back in 1980 and how that must have felt. I can, you know? I can speak to that. Ah. <laughs> I read it, I read it as it was coming out and loved every second of it. Yeah. And I'm sure, I'm, I would imagine it was just, it must have blown your mind the way they ended that. And, 
that was that was one of those books that when it came out, I read it. Then I came back a couple hours later and read it again. Then came back a couple of days later later and read it from issue one twenty all the way through in a run, row again. I mean, I, I I really you know was on top of that one when it was when it was coming out. That's that was one of the the real you know just key runs of my uh, younger days. Well, it's great. It's great that you're telling me that because I was reading comics at that point, but I, I was only uh, let's see, I was seven years old, so I didn't have the wherewithal yet to be buying like runs, and I hadn't found a comic shop yet. So I read that story and when when they released it in trade a few years later with a, a Bill Sienkiewicz cover, and uh, I, I can imagine, and you you verified that how that felt. Yet you know today when you, when these events happen, you, you, you kind of reflexively think, all right, how are they going to change this down the road? Um, yeah. So yeah, there's there's never a character that dies that you just assume it's forever anymore. Yeah. So and there's there's I mean there's gravity when a character really dies. If if they really do it, but you know that, that's that's far and few between now. It was something I don't th- actually. It wasn't a it wasn't a comic. It was a TV show. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head what it was. Oh, you know, <laughs> it's actually the TV show. I don't know if you watch it. Justified. I've um, heard it's good. I've never seen it. Yeah, it it mm. is. But they 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 ended the last episode with somebody getting shot in the chest. Yeah. And they're so cavalier about not even caring to make you think that he's dead that when they show next week on Justified, he's there. <laughs> <laughs> I guess he's wearing a bulletproof vest. Or, okay. or somehow he got hit in the chest, but he's okay. <laughs> I don't know, Paul. I think we've just we've all just seen – we've watched too many shows, too many movies, read too many books because – I walked by tonight. My my daughter now she's on a, a kick to watch all of Supernatural on on Netflix, which I had said, yeah, I was thinking of watching that, but you know I don't have time for ten seasons because she just dives right in. And um, I walk by, and there's a girl that gets shot. She's a zombie, and uh, and she she falls down. She gets hit in the head, and I turn to my daughter. I said, you know she's gonna get up, right? <laughs> that they didn't take her out. Not just because she's a zombie, just because it's, you know, basic TV screenwriting that, you know, they're going to come up and look at her. Oh, yeah, she's dead. <laughs> sure enough, there it was. Now, are you guys caught up on Arrow? No, I'm, I'm way behind on season three. Okay, because I had a story like that, but it's a spoiler and I'm going to just hold on to uh, it then. I don't want to ruin anything. I appreciate I l- that, sir. I left the show in season one and I'm trying to get back into it, but now it, only because The Flash has got me more I'm I'm all up on the Flash. Flash is awesome. Yeah, I mean, uh, yes, definitely. Flash is great. I'm several episodes behind, but I've been enjoying it. And oh, I also yeah. to, I also to finish uh, Agent Carter, which I'm loving. Oh yeah, that's oh, it's that such is... a great period piece. Yeah, I have, yeah, I have a couple to go on that. I, that's wonderful, and uh, I'm enjoying Agents of Shield quite a bit as well. Well, mm-hmm. I, I think Flash is the best of the comic book inspired TV shows right now. For sure. And they just keep throwing characters out there, and it's it's and and they work. You're like, oh my god, they're doing this character. Oh, oh my god, they're doing that character. It's it's great. And and but just just to hit on it without us again, no spoilers because I know you're a couple mm-hmm. of episodes behind, Chris. But you're gonna get to a point where you where your jaw drops in the next couple of weeks, and it's just oh, great. wonderful. Yeah, because the last episode I watched was actually the first one back from the mid season break. Keep watching, my friends. Yeah, Keep so watching. Like, I'm, you're I'm gonna definitely- love it. Yeah, I'm definitely a couple behind, um, but I, I, it's, I've, I'm really enjoying the show quite. It's well done. And and the whole reason that that we got started with this is because my daughter loves the show Glee that just ended. Yeah. 
And oh, he was on. He was on Glee, wasn't he? The Flash. Yeah, he was. He yeah. he yeah. was. He he apparently played a bully on the show Glee, <laughs> and and she loves that show. And then she heard he was going to be playing the Flash, so because of that, she knew it was going to start on Arrow. So she got me and my son watching Arrow with her, and now we're we're all addicted to Arrow and the Fl- and the Flash. <laughs> Excellent. Thankfully, I can say I'm not addicted to Glee, but that's besides the point. <laughs> All right. Well, Adam, you've been exceptionally quiet. So for that reason, and because it's the format of the show, uh, I'm going to throw you the first book to, to cover for us. Well, I thank you for that, Paul, because I, I would have requested that honor, actually, if, if you hadn't thrown it to me, because you know I know what you guys are talking about, and uh, what my pick is kind of flimsy fare compared to you know, the socio-political implications of your books. Um, so anyway, my uh, my pick is the Marvel selection of the evening, and it's uh, the Secret Defenders number twelve. Yes, that uh, often misunderstood uh, Secret Defenders series of, of, of Marvels from the early 90s, um, which I was buying and reading at the time. Um, those of you who maybe weren't into comics uh, in the early 90s, uh, the, the the concept of the Secret Defenders book, at the beginning at least, uh, was uh, a rotating cast of characters brought together uh, as needed by um, the, uh, so, so the organizer, Doctor Strange. Uh, his uh, mystic senses and his orb of Agamotto would let him know that some great threat was going to occur somewhere in the immediate future. And then he uh, turned to a deck of enchanted tarot cards to select uh, a team of uh, uh, Marvel characters, heroes typically, or anti-heroes, that uh, were for some reason ideally suited to deal with this emerging threat. And funny enough, those uh, tarot cards tended to favor... Uh, big money, uh, marketable Marvel characters. So, <laughs> disproportionate number of Spider-Man and uh, Wolverine type characters, as opposed to you know Firebird or uh, Rocket Raccoon or something. Yeah, if uh, it was now, well, you'd yeah, be seeing a lot of Rocket Raccoon. <laughs> yes, you would. You absolutely would. But in 1992, less so. Um, but uh, then. The, uh, in the beginning, I was in love with the concept. I loved the idea of uh, just a, a different random or seemingly random bunch of characters thrown together uh, for, you know, odd rem for, for a specific purpose um, in each arc. Um, uh, the threats they were brought together to, to face were you know, mildly alarming to outright lame. Uh, Roy Thomas was the person writing the book in, for the first several issues. He, he's been a longtime writer of Doctor Strange, so that's probably how he ended up uh, with that job. Um, but then uh, after that, for a little while, Ron Mars took over as writer, you know, just for a uh, matter of, let's see, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, yeah, six issues. Um, and uh, what I'm looking at here, issue number 12, is uh, the uh, fourth of those issues. And uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's the one-year anniversary of the title. And so naturally, this being the 90s, they had to celebrate with a prismatic hollow foil stamped cover. <laughs> and it's a, it's a close-up of Thanos' head because uh, in this issue, he's kind of taking over the role of uh, summoner and organizer of the secret defenders from Doctor Strange. You know, the, the, the tagline on the cover is, uh-oh, how come Thanos is on this cover? And uh, the, the hollow foil is uh, representing the cosmic energy that's uh, shining and coruscating out from his eyes. Um, Lens flare that would make J.J. Abrams jealous. Yeah, yeah. I don't think unless he like <laughs> stamps prismatic foil on his, uh, his <laughs> on the, the 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 celluloid, he he can't achieve that effect. Um, so uh, Thanos in this issue, well, it, 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 the story picks up directly from sort of an epilogue uh, slash cliffhanger at the end of issue number 11, where we see Thanos fishing this big muscular green uh, 
man who's floating in outer space. Um, the, this being turns out to be a character called Guitar, and uh, Guitar is a space pirate. Uh, he was the, the, the ever-trustworthy uh, first mate of uh, Nebula, you know, a character who had, at times has claimed to be uh, Thanos' granddaughter. And the um, uh, Guitar was created by Jim Starlin during his run on the Silver Surfer, and Ron Mars, when he took over on the title, uh, picked him up and uh, used him a bunch. Um, ultimately, Thanos ended up killing him, but then in a rather uncharacteristic move for the uh, death-worshipping Thanos, he, uh, he fishes uh, Guitar's corpse out of uh, deep space and uh, uses uh, mentors, you know, Thanos' father's machines, to bring him back to life. And uh, he explains to Guitar that he has he's chosen to do this because he has need for Guitar. He has a mission for him. And uh, then on the next page, we see uh, the two of them looking at a bunch of monitors in Thanos' spaceship, uh, showing uh, headshots of various Marvel Universe bad guys. And Thanos is uh, doing pretty much what Doctor Strange has been doing with his magic tarot cards. He's choosing, handpicking certain uh, Marvel Universe antagonists for a special mission he's got in mind for them. The title of the story, appropriately enough, is Pawns, because Thanos is so he's selecting his pawns from the, this character base. So you, you can see headshots up there of, uh, of the Juggernaut, of uh, Annihilus, Ultron, Deathbird, Venom, and uh, Darkseid. Funnily enough, mm. uh, and also the four characters that Thanos actually chose for this uh, mission. Uh, oh, I may as well uh, throw out the creative team. Well, before we go any further, um, the aforementioned Ron Mars, who uh, used the guitar character in in Silver Surfer, is the writer here. Uh, Tom Grindberg is penciling, and Don Hudson is the inker. Uh, colors by John Callis. Okay, so Thanos has uh, he's got uh, Guitar here to act as his uh, lieutenant. You know, to be the, he's going to be the the top kick for this uh, squad of, of uh, supervillains that Thanos has recruited. Uh, Guitar immediately wants to know. You know. His first protest is, "Why me? You know, why, you, why why don't you go get my Captain Nebula? She's far more capable than I am, and uh, she claims to be a relative of yours." And at that point, Thanos tosses Guitar against a wall. You know, he he is. Uh, Unhappy with uh, Nebula's uh, self-representation as a descendant of his, and uh, he, he he warns Guitar in no uncertain terms: mention Nebula a second time, and uh, I'm just going to kill you uh, a second time. <laughs> so, and then we meet uh, the cast of characters here: the the four villains that Thanos has recruited f- uh, from various locations, mostly Earth, uh, to uh, complete this mission underneath uh, Guitar's leadership are uh, the Super Scroll, the Titanium Man. Nitro the Exploding Man, and Rhino. <laughs> you see, that's, yeah, Chris, that's, that, that is the origin of that uh, CGS catchphrase. Uh, we were doing our spotlight on Marvel Comics in the 90s uh, series of episodes, and um, I, well, we talked about Secret Defenders, and I had to mention this story, which is you know, issue 12 here is a part one of a three-part story involving Thanos and these villains he's uh, recruited. Um, and I was trying to remember the fourth member of Thanos's squad, and Rhino wasn't coming to me. So then a couple of minutes later, we moved on to another topic, and I just, in the middle of the conversation, just blurted out, Rhino! <laughs> finally popped into my head. <laughs> you heard it here, my... folks, an origin story. <laughs> yep. The origin of Rhino. 
So we so Thanos has his uh, four uh, cosmic cat's paws here uh, with Guitar to lead them, and uh, Thanos seems to have done his research into the uh, not only the the strengths and abilities of these characters, but also their uh, the weaknesses and character foibles that he can exploit to get them to do his bidding here. Guitar to begin with, his tragic flaw is uh, a tragically misplaced loyalty to uh, his captain Nebula. Um, cause, uh, the only thing he asks Thanos for in return for his cooperation is that Thanos, uh, leave Nebula alone and spare her whatever wrath he has in mind for her. And Thanos sort of bemusedly agrees to that. Uh, Super Skrull, uh, his, uh, his, his character crux is, um, a sense of honor and loyalty to the Skrull Empire. Nitro has a short temper and a rapacious, uh, rapacious nature, quote-unquote. Uh, Titanium Man is hung up on communist ideology and loyalty to the state of Russia, and Rhino is, quote, tragically dull-witted. So, Thanos, uh, these four characters are in stasis when he and Guitar are looking them over, but slowly they awaken, and the first thing Super Skrull does is to attack Thanos. You know, this being a 90s comic, we have to have as many fight scenes as possible. Uh, So, uh, we have uh, Super Skrull, uh, who's arguably the most powerful of these four recruits of Thanos', attacks uh, Thanos. And uh, so there is a quick fight scene between the two of them. Naturally, the Mad Titan comes out on top of that. Um, then he explained when having with this display of his power, uh, this show of force, uh, kind of impressed on the other three that it's not a good idea to uh, quarrel with Thanos here. Uh, Thanos then explains the mission. He's going to dispatch them to the, the planet of Harg, uh, to a monastery, uh, an order of monks who worship as their Oracle, um, some, some kind of, uh, being or entity who is uh, a repository of ancient knowledge from a long defunct civilization. And uh, Thanos uh, wants to acquire this oracle, you know, for reasons of his own. He 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 tells them that uh, th- this oracle is uh, beginning to instigate a, an interplanetary holy war, and for reasons of his own, Thanos wants to see this war quelled. And he convinces um, each of these uh, villain characters that it's in their own best interest to help him out. He tells Nitro and Rhino that there's all kinds of riches in this monastery that they can have for themselves if they cooperate. Thanos says that uh, some of the the information that this oracle knows uh, could be of use to Russia, and uh, he convinces the Super Scroll that uh, if uh, he prevents this holy war from breaking out, it will be uh, you know, advantageous to the Scroll Empire, and it would be a feather in the Super Scroll's cap, and it might restore some of his lost honor and uh, get him back in good with uh, uh, the Emperor of well, the, 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 well, the Scroll throne. So, having thus. Uh, pulled the wool over the eyes of all of these characters. He then dispatches them to this planet. The monastery does not look unlike uh, Jabba's palace in Return of the Jedi, which, if you know your Star Wars backstory, actually was a monastery. Uh, The the Bomar monks uh, called with their little disembodied brains in spider-shaped robots skittering around in the background. That's that's, uh, that the the Jabba's palace was supposed to be originally a monastery, and sure enough, this monastery looks like that also. Uh, The villains go inside, and surprise, surprise, they discover that Thanos has misrepresented certain facts to them. Uh, there aren't a whole lot of riches lying around for Rhino and Nitro to pillage, and also the monks are very well armed. There's this uh, very well-stocked artillery armory inside uh, 
uh, the monastery. So a second fight scene then breaks out as our four villains plus Guitar find themselves badly overwhelmed by these alien warrior monks. And the final page of this issue, part one of three, as I said, is Thanos just kind of squatting up there in his spaceship, grinning and chuckling to himself, watching this the carnage uh, on this big view screen. So, um... Yeah, this this is very much indicative of its time. I mean, I, I chose it mainly because you know, for, for sentimental reasons. You know, it's, it's there's isn't a terribly great amount of depth or substance to it. But I just remember, as a young man of uh, 14 years old, when I first read this, I just thought it was awesome. I liked the Secret Defenders concept enough as it was, but to see it being done with villains instead of with heroes was even cooler. It was just kind of I read about this in a. The, a comic shop newsletter, I think, uh, a couple of months before it actually came out, and I was just so excited that there was just this random, eclectic bunch of characters, villain characters, being thrown together at the behest of Thanos, the Mad Titan, uh, who was already a favorite character of mine, even all the way back then, thanks to Jim Starlin's Infinity series of miniseries, which got me into comics in the first place. Um, I was just really excited to see Thanos bringing together Rhino, Nitro, Titanium Man, and Super Scroll for a special mission. Um, and well, you know, as I've said, it's, it, 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 there's an awful lot of testosterone circulating in these pages. A lot of fight scenes breaking out. Uh, Tom, Gri Tom Grinberg has never been a favorite penciler of mine. Uh, all of the characters as he's drawing them in this issue, um, are kind of grotesquely malproportioned and over-muscled, absurdly anabolic looking. And, uh... <laughs> Don Hudson's inks are just—they're kind of decadent. They're very heavy. Um, they're, they're sort of artfully placed. So I'll give uh, Mr. Hudson some credit for that. Um, but they're just kind of these big oozing pools of black lying all over everything, and they serve to remind the reader just how many muscles all these characters have. Throw the muscles into sharp relief. Um, on the writing end of things, though, I mean, this is Ron Mars, and uh, he is, you know, those of you out there who've you know, read some of his Silver Surfer issues from the 90s or even his uh, Kyle Rayner Green Lantern series from DC, he is one of the most prominent writers of uh, cosmic superhero action comics uh, of the 90s. And he, he is a, you know, a skilled writer. He is good with dialogue. These characters are all written pretty much in character, you know, even if this is just uh, primarily mindless 90s-style aggression going on in these pages. It is well-scripted. I'll give him credit for that. I mean, even the rhino, I mean, it's so easy for writers to just take the rhino and play him almost exclusively for laughs. You know, just uh, play him as the, you know, the dumb muscle, the, the ignorant thug. And uh, there is some of that in the, his portrayal of the rhino, but uh, he's not just, uh, you know, the big uh, buffoonish dumb guy. You know, there are a couple of scenes you know, in this issue and the two that follow in which the rhino comes off as the voice of reason. You know, he's, he's actually the one stopping the other characters from needlessly fighting one another. He, he comes off as, uh, as very professional, actually, in this story. So, you know, kudos to Ron Mars for seeing that in the rhino's character. He wouldn't continue to get work as a muscle for hire in the Marvel Universe underworld if he were just the, the big, dumb, uncontrollable bruiser that uh, some writers seem to think he should be. Um, so I, I, I enjoyed the characterizations in this issue very much. Um, and you know, as I've said, uh, there, there are two more parts to this story, issues 13 and 14. You know, in a nutshell, uh, Thanos uh, double-crosses the team and hangs them out to dry. They uh, you know, corner this oracle who turns out to be an ancient robot. 
uh, for Thanos. They pull the plug on the force field surrounding this planet that prevented Thanos from just teleporting in and grabbing the Oracle in the first place. They do that, and Thanos immediately teleports in and grabs the Oracle, abandons his away team on this planet uh, to the tender mercies of an army of uh, of monks. Uh, through their surprising skill and resourcefulness, you know, Mars really showing us, uh, you know, what what super villains are capable of when they don't have heroes breathing down their necks. Uh, this team of characters are able to pull off an impossible escape from this death planet. They're rescued by the Silver Surfer, of all people, and uh, his then-companion, uh, Jenis Vell, you know, the, 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 the clone mm. son of Captain Marvel, who was calling himself Legacy at that time. And we get this uh, really tense scene when uh, Nitro, the guy who was responsible for the death of Captain Marvel, Legacy's father, actually just kind of gets this smirk on his face when he realizes who he's talking to, shakes the kid's hand, and uh, just walks away. <laughs> so, yeah, and that was actually followed up, too. Marvel did a, a miniseries called Cosmic Powers, a six-issue mini, and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, each issue of that focused on a different Marvel cosmic character, and Legacy was one of those characters, and his story involved him you know, realizing who this Nitro guy was and uh, what reason he had to uh, be extremely pissed at this Nitro guy. And so it, it's the story of Legacy hunting Nitro down, bringing him back to Titan, and putting him uh, in, in lockdown. So, And, and that uh, kind of spun out of this story. So it, it's a chance for uh, Ron Mars to tie off a couple of you know, loose ends from his Silver Surfer work to bring back the Guitar character and uh, just uh, move some chess pieces around for some future cosmic superhero storytelling, I guess, that was going to go on elsewhere. But... Uh, uh, but the story, you know, for my money, as a you know a child of '90s comics, is 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 a worthwhile read. You know, it's it's a super villain team up story, and if you happen to be a Thanos completist, uh, you could do worse than to have it and you know the two issues that follow it in, in your collection. So it's just a story that I remember fondly from my early days as a collector, and I thought I'd give it some due by uh, fishing it out of the bins here on this show. <laughs> I'm glad you did. Uh... I remember the Secret Defenders series. Now, this this was shortly after I had gotten back into collecting comics after my hiatus from collecting. And I also uh, enjoyed the concept of just being able to put together a group kind of at random, uh, almost like Marvel team-up on a grander scale. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I like that idea. Uh, and then the idea of doing it with villains is kind of taking it to the next level, which would be cool. And then I, I would think... Maybe if you did it and you had your random group and it included heroes and villains, it would give you a chance for some uh, some inner battling between the uh, people who are supposed to be working together that might have been kind of cool. Mm-hmm. I think, to me, the, the single best moment in this is just the fact that they put Darkseid's face on the uh, mod. <laughs> I, 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 I saw that and I thought that was awesome. Uh, I agree with you 100% on the artwork it is not my style of, of art, and the inking is really way too heavy. It almost this points where it looks like like he spilt his bottle of India ink and tried to <laughs> spread it around a little bit. Um, I can see in certain spots in the penciling where where there is quality in there. It's just not really my style, like, which which is uh, seems to be a tune I'm repeating a lot lately. Um, certainly, it, it's got a dynamic style going for it and, and very action heavy as you said uh but you know on, on in the grand scheme of things it's certainly it's definitely not my art style and and i really don't care for this look on the other hand it didn't impair my ability to read it and enjoy the story 
So I, I consider that to be a certain plus because sometimes if the art is bad enough, it could turn me off to the point where I don't even want to read it. Uh, and the story is just pretty cool. I, I, I love the idea that Thanos is, you know, one step ahead of everything, uh, you know, and, and that nobody is really figuring out his true motivations and all of this uh, as they send them off. I'm not familiar at all with the character of uh, Gaitar, uh, but everybody else I, I am. And, and it, it reminds me, like, with the Super Skrull in particular, how he or his personality was almost non-existent uh, other than some just flashes really until you got to the point of annihilation where they really they, you know they really fleshed him out a lot more and made him a, a three-dimensional character uh the motivation for titanium man kind of almost seems a little forced in this that, that he'd be going there to try and get russian technology I, I don't know it just doesn't seem to ring true uh and then eventually didn't uh dan slot kind of make rhino not quite so dull dull-witted uh well, this is going well, in, into well, well, what what is for me the future? So I, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I you know, Dan Slott's been doing great stuff with the Spider-Man books, I know, but I just haven't been well, buying all that much of it since so much of it is three ninety nine in cover price. I know Mark Wade uh, did a story involving where he. Now, the rhino tried to increase his own intelligence, and it backfired on him. I know there was a story in the Spider-Man's Tangled Web anthology series called Flowers for Rhino. Uh, I think Paul Jenkins might have written that one, uh, in which uh, the rhino underwent a procedure to increase his intelligence and uh, ended up having it undone because he found it made him less happy than he'd been. But uh, yeah, I don't really know what uh, Dan Slott's been doing. Chris? There was, there was a story uh, when early in Slott's run on Spider-Man, and if memory serves me uh rhino rhino was basically no longer uh involved in criminal ways and he had found his true love and and he and spider-man actually had a uh, detente of sorts and then a new character took on the identity of the rhino yeah i heard about this and then what, what ultimately happened was he killed the rhino's love and the rhino blamed spider-man for it went back onto his rhino identity and basically tore apart this new rhino. And that that's the last I remember seeing of him in the last few years. Chris, you're you're a huge Spider-Man fan. Are you familiar with that story? I am not familiar with that story. I mean, I, I've heard of it, but admittedly, I've been spottier with my Spider-Man reading since uh, One More Day. Um, I, I've, I've kept up with the book in some arcs and not others. So that that one I'm not familiar with. Uh, although I, I will certainly vouch for Dan Slott's writing, both you know on She-Hulk, uh, which he did prior to the Superior Spider-Man on Spider-Man as well, and certainly on Silver Surfer. So, guys, top-notch writer. So, what did what did uh, Chris? What what did you think of this one? Well, admittedly, I looked through my bins. I couldn't find this issue because whenever I have a Thanos issue in my bins, it's gone very quickly. Wow. Um, so, I mean, I read online and read a bit about it, and I looked at the art as well. Um, I can totally see why Adam selected this, uh, the Thanos, the presence of Thanos, and also just the nostalgia from that time period. Because this is when you're first getting into comics, right, Adam? Oh, yes. Yeah, yes, I, so, I've been reading comics for only a little over a year when this came out. Yeah, so I can totally see how – how old were you? You were uh, 1994, so you were uh, – Well, let's see. I think this – it's cover dated February of 94. So, so it, it came probably, out in 93, yeah. Yeah, so I was just uh, probably weeks away from my 15th birthday. Okay, so that's the perfect age for this type of story. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and I don't mean that as a put down, just that, oh, no. you know, Understood. someone 
in that age would really love to see this kind of slugfest, right, with all these different villains, and plus you get Thanos. And I'm looking at a quote from the comic now from Marvel Wiki, where, from Thanos, where it says, I did not ask for your trust. I demand only your obedience. And uh, that's perfect, Thanos. Wait, so, wait, wait. Uh, that sounds like my wife. <laughs> <laughs> Sir, I'm not going to touch that one with a 10-foot pole. But anyway, um, every married man's in that in that situation at some point or another uh-huh. but um uh this this sounds like it's just very much a product of its time um and ron mars is a wonderful writer i've always enjoyed his work and adam i appreciate you commenting on the fact that he probably took something that would have probably been a real odoriferous turd in somebody else's hands and made it at least uh engaging because um, he's he's a he's an excellent writer um i'd recommend the, the series samurai heaven and earth he did with uh I think it was Luke Ross several years ago. Beautiful story. Um, so if, if I see this in my bins again, it's, I'll definitely pull it out and give it a thorough read. But just from what you've told me, what I've seen online, it, it's very much a product of its time that at least had a, a, a capable writer on it. So that's my thoughts on that. All right. How about this, you, Doctor? This um, The whole – I never read the uh, any of the Secret Defenders, but this whole concept kind of reminds me a little bit of what we would have later – uh, I believe in the late 90s, well, actually probably more than 2000s, uh, with the Exiles, with, you know, bringing together different people from different, actually, and in that case, from different realities, heroes and villains. Well, actually, yeah, actually they were mostly heroes, but they would all be from different realities and they had to go and solve something to prevent or 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 keep this reality from a certain re, uh, one from fa- falling apart and then once they you know did enough jobs they would be able to go back home to their own reality and then later it was found out there was another a team that was basically working against them doing the same thing you know and I, they actually came to loggerheads in one of the issues but uh, I guess I've babbled a little bit too much about that did you guys read any of the Exiles? It's kind kind of the super team version of Quantum Leap. Yeah, I read I yeah. read I read the first couple arcs and enjoyed it thoroughly. I loved what um, that was Judd Winnick, correct? I believe so. Yes. Yeah. No. Oh, yeah, definitely was at first. Thank you, sir. And I know that um, the art team was uh, Mike McCone and Mark McKenna, Onikor. I know personally because he used to live near me. Um, I thought that book was really fun. It was imaginative. That they, they really he really sort of explored different aspects. Let's let's call it a Marvel's multiverse. So to speak, I didn't stay with the book the whole way, but uh, what I read, I, I enjoyed. I stayed almost up until till the end, and then uh, I think they rebooted it, and that's where I kind of drifted off, and things were just starting to get really expensive, and I had to drop something. Yeah, I think uh, Chris Claremont uh, was on it for you know, well, but I think they rebooted it like twice, and the first time it was Claremont, and the second time I want to say Jeff Parker. Um, but yeah, I, I, I too really uh, enjoy The Exiles. Um, I have almost all 100 issues of its original run. I think I skipped a few that Chuck Austin wrote. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Tony Bedard wrote a whole bunch of them. You know, he's, he's a real solid writer. He also was an editor for DC at a time and later became kind of their go-to fill-in arc guy for a couple of years at DC. And I think he ended up writing more issues of Exiles than Winnick himself did. Well, then, then they eventually found out at one point, or at least where I was at in the story, was that uh, the the person that they thought was the he was call, calling himself, I think, the Time Broker. There was actually just these this little insect race that was uh, what was their fortress called? Like it was called the Citadel, I think. Oh, I can't remember where they were based out of. I wish I could tell you, but I don't think I've read far enough to know. Oh, whoops! Spoilers. 
No, it's okay. I, I actually knew about the, the time broker reveal. Oh, I, okay. I, I peeked at the back of that issue when it came out. So yeah, I may, I, maybe I need to, to 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 go back and see if I can see where I left off with those because it man, that's been a long time. Um, this I did read a lot of the Ron Mars Silver Surfer because back then I was in the Navy and I had lots of money and so I had lots of comics <laughs> and I was always snatching stuff up and I loved. That whole that whole Silver Surfer run with Thanos and 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 all, um, it's just ma- magnificent. I mean, and, and this kind of sounds. I, I don't have a copy of this book, um, but this sounds in tone. You know, being Mars. You know, this this is a Thanos that I remember. You know, the the manipulating dickhead. I guess you could say. <laughs> So uh, if you guys aren't familiar with it, what we do at the end of each book is we rate it cover, art, story, and then overall. And Chris, this should be right up your alley. We, we rated basically school grades, A through F, right. with C being average, you know, average book, nothing special. So Adam, your book, how do you rate it? Okay, so uh, on what am I uh, rating it again? Well, what are the uh, five verses? The, the cover? The yeah. interior art, the story, and then an overall grade for the book on a whole. Mm. Okay. Um, well, are pluses and minuses uh, inbound? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. Um, cover, um, just a 90s magpie. I got a weakness for stamped foil and <laughs> extreme close-ups. So I'm actually going to give it an A for the cover. Uh, interior art is going to be uh, uh, more like a C. Uh, story, A, overall, B. All right, that's fair. Uh, I would go a little lower than you on the cover. A uh, little bit too much black for me. I, I, I also am a mark for uh, foil and shiny and uh, all of that stuff. But a uh, little, little too dark on the left side of Thanos' face. I, I think I could have used for a little bit more detail. Uh, so I'm going to say a B- for me on the cover. Uh, interior art, I agree with you. I'd give it a C. Not my style, but I see some quality in, in some of the layouts and the storytelling. It moves along briskly and it's easy to follow. So I'll say a C on the interior art. And the story, uh, I wouldn't go as high as an A because I don't feel it's groundbreaking in any way. But it's 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 pretty much pulls you right in and it's entertaining and makes you want to see what happens next. So I'd say a solid B on the interior art. Overall, B minus. Uh, well, the two remaining of us don't have a full. I mean, uh, I do have a picture of the cover, and uh, I'll give the cover. I'll give the cover a B. Um, the description of the story, uh, perhaps it's, it's wonderful narration by our guest. Uh, I will give that a B plus. And some of the pictures I saw from the interior art, mm, yeah, I give it a C. So I guess that's going to average out to uh, like a B minus overall for the book. Yeah, like Bill, I haven't, I didn't fully read the actual issue so I could get my hands on it. But um, the cover, I'd give a B minus. Uh, I'm just not, I'm, I'm not a big fan in general of 90s superhero art, um, with some exceptions. Uh, based on Adam's always. Uh, delightful narrative uh and that may be more to his credit than what it was actually written but you know that would be a a b minus and the art would i've seen some pages that's a c as well so i don't know what that rounds out to but probably in the b minus area i would guess yeah it's a, for the most part we agree adam is the yeah. highest on it but not 
a heck of a lot higher. And it does, you know, as, as we said, it kind of falls in your sweet spot of early in your collecting. And we, I think we all have experiences with the books from early in our collecting being our favorites. So that's, that's not a surprise. Mm-hmm. All right, so that there are some issues of secret defenders you don't have in your back issue bins. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, Murd, anything with Thanos, because plus I'm selling these comics for 50 cents. He's, he's not there long. Did you find that there was a huge uh, upswing on the people searching out Thanos after the Avengers movie? Uh, not necessarily. I, I mean, Thanos is a villain that's so compelling, especially when Starlin gets his hands on him, that he tends to... I mean, any anything I have with him in it, like the various Silver Surfer issues that, that Bill mentioned, for example... And again, I'm selling this stuff so cheap. It, it's just it's just not there long. There's always somebody looking for those stories, regardless. Mm-hmm. Of um, so. And just just to just because I, I I can't stop fixating on it. I just I still love the fact that they have Darkseid in here when he and Thanos are compared to each other so frequently, and and that they have him in just unashamedly just right there for everybody to see. <laughs> Did you know uh, when you guys looked it up? Were you able to see that shot at all? I did not see that shot. Because hmm. they have the multiple screens with the different characters on it. And uh, on one side of it, it's a, almost a little too difficult to tell who it is. But you see Annihilus, part, just part of his face. Uh, and then all the way on the other side, and it's a double-page spread. All the way on the other side, it's kind of a close-up of, of Darkseid's face. Uh, about two, About a third of it being cut off because the panel ends. So it's not so, so clear that DC could come at them and say uh, copyright infringement, because I guess they could probably make an argument that it's the Psycho Man or somebody like that. But it's very <laughs> clearly uh, dark side. Well, props for that little bit of, a, I guess you call it guerrilla counter-marketing that went on there. It's, uh, that's funny. And I know there was, there was some sentiment after the Avengers came out, the movie, that showing Thanos at the end of it was basically a trump card that would prevent DC from using Darkseid as a villain in a Justice League movie because Marvel already kind of put their flag on the uh, the similar character and that everybody would accuse them of copying Marvel if they did it. That's an excellent point. And I'm happy for a couple of reasons because I don't really like Darkseid as a Justice League villain anyway. So that just forces uh, Warner to get a little more creative. I don't necessarily like him as a Justice League villain in the comics, but I loved him as a Justice League villain in the cartoon. Oh, he was great in the cartoon. Oh, yeah. Anyway, uh, maybe it's time to move on to book number two, which, uh, Chris? All right. Have at it. Thank you, sir. I chose, uh, this is from DC Vertigo under the Vertigo Visions Sub imprint from 1995. Prez smells like Teen President. This is a one-shot story uh, written by Ed Brubaker early in his career. Uh, we all know, of course, the multiple multiple Eisner Award-winning writer today. And the artist is a favorite of Adams, Eric Shanauer. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so, I'd heard about this story and this character for many years. Uh, just to give a little bit of background, and Adam can certainly chime in because he has a lot of information. On this too. Prez was created by Joe Simon, the, the legendary co-creative Captain America, back in the early 70s. I want to say 1974, but don't quote me on that. Um, and Simon came up with the idea of, of a teenage president. So 
for four or five glorious issues. This is back in the Bronze Age. Prez Ricard, and his first name was Prez, P-R-E-Z, was the president of the United States in some version of the DC Universe. I think we've kind of established that it was pre-Crisis Earth-1. Adam, would you say that's probably true? Uh, possibly some other parallel Earth-2. Um, okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, Earth also, that is, Earth-2 being a loaded term there. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, it might have been... The, like. Well, you know, in the current DC multiverse, uh, it, it's Earth 47. That's, okay. that's he, in, in my and, mind, I throw all such stories to the Haneyverse. Right. Ah, uh, yes, the Haneyverse. <laughs> Earth- and then just uh, I, 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 while you were talking, I, I punched it up on the computer. The first issue of Prez was cover dated August, September of 73. Okay. So, so you were pretty out, close. Yeah, it came out in 1973. Um, it was a four-issue four series. Uh, the artist was Jerry Grandinetti. Joe Simon was the writer. And just a, a quick background about the character itself uh, before we get to this more – well, the story's 20 years old, the one I'm talking about. We'll go back to the 70s here for a moment. Uh, Prez Ricard was the first and only teenage president of the United States. They amended the Constitution so an 18-year-old could become the president, um, and Prez came from the town of Steadfast, um, and he was named Prez, P-R-E-Z, because his, his mother thought – that someday he should be the president of the United States. And he made all the clocks in Steadfast uh, in, run on time. He got them all in sync because they're all out of sync. And eventually he made his way to running for president. And I'm reading here from Wikipedia. Uh, with 45% of youth voters under a, under the age of 30, the Youthful Congress passed an amendment lowering the eligibility age for the presidency. Uh, and since he was already a senator, he was voted president of the United States. His mother became the vice president. And his sister became his secretary. And Eagle Free, a young American Indian, uh, also was uh, became the director of the FBI. Um, the original series, if you haven't read it, I highly recommend you seek it out. They're completely ludicrous, uh, <laughs> but they're immensely fun. I mean, he walks around in a red turtleneck sweater with the seal of the President of the United States emblazoned on his chest. Um, he fights uh, Boss Smiley, which who had an actual smiley face as his head, which I thought was kind of clever. And uh, he fights vampires without legs, a right-wing militia led by the great-great-great-great-great-great-grandnephew of George Washington, uh, evil chess players. Um, he also appeared in Supergirl number 10, which Adam mentioned in, in 1974. Um, and that story implies that Prez was on Earth-1. Um and he'll then make an appearance in the Sandman book by Neil Gaiman years later. I think that was – I want to say it was issue 54. Yes, it was. You about that? Yep. Um, so he's had, he's had only a handful of appearances. And actually, CGS did a really great spotlight on the Prez uh, years ago. It was uh, the Politics and Comics episode. I forgot the number. Uh, sorry, Pants. But uh, that, that was a good overview of, of, of his appearances as well. Now, so he only appeared a handful of times. Then he vanishes. And Brubaker does this one shot, which is in 1995, which tries to answer the question, what actually happened to Prez Ricard? And I'd always heard about this story. I'd always heard about the Prez character. So I was really, and I, I, when I got this book, I already was well acquainted with Brubaker and how much I loved his work on, you know, uh, Scene of the Crime and Catwoman and Captain America and Daredevil and so forth. So I hunted out this back issue. I know Murd had always enjoyed this back issue. Um, it wasn't that difficult to find. You can often find it in bargain bins. And the premise of the story is it's 1995 or, or 96, and this young guy named PJ, who 
who is a spitting image of Prez, long blonde tresses and so forth. He goes on a journey across the country with two of his buddies. We're all kind of early 20-something, you know, slackers who, you know, they have got the grunge look and so forth. And then they're listening to Lemonheads and, you know, different bands that were popular at that time. And they're, they're going to try to find out where is Prez. And the book, it addresses Prez's history and, and what he tried to achieve and, you know, in terms of free health care and, and so forth and so on for the people. It's also about this kid, PJ, whose mother told him that he, he had no father, and she said that your father was Prez. And throughout his life, he wondered if that was really true. And he's going through sort of a, an early life crisis. He, he he was in a rock band, but then it kind of petered out. He had a, he was in a loving relationship with a girl, but then he kind of – he was kind of consumed with fear and, and, and indecision, indecision, lack of direction. And he kind of fled from the relationship, and he kind of went downhill from there into, into sort of drinking and, and just you know wild self-indulgence and, and, and excess. And he decides to try to get his life back together. He needs to find out who his father actually is. So he goes on this this road trip with his two close friends, also have their own stories to tell. And you know they meet different characters. And they find out that Prez was spotted at this diner um, and, in Kansas. So they go there, and they meet a waitress um, – who was kind of fixated on pop culture and serial killers. And she tells them how Prez was there briefly, but he wasn't there for long. And he was talking about how, you know, um, the government's failing people and that the insurance companies are, are so forth and so on are part of this plot to deny people the care they need. And then he vanishes from the diner. And they then decide to go to Steadfast itself, which I believe they say is in Maine. Yes. And... They've turned the entire town in, into, you know, a tourist trap for Prez and Prez, you know, ephemera and, and, and artifacts and so forth. And and the, the young men are kind of disillusioned by by this because they just feel like they this whole trip's been for naught. And they meet an old woman though who turns out knew Prez personally, and she gives the kids the location of, of a friend of his who may know where Prez actually is. Um, and so they travel to sort of this remote cabin and this this old hippie comes out and he agrees to take PJ sort of on a, a sort of a, a quick quest and uh, he reveals to him that Prez had become so disillusioned at what had happened to the country that all the reforms he tried to carry out um, were all abandoned by subsequent uh, governments or, or administrations in the government and he just talks about how he makes an allusion to when the United States invaded Panama, that Prez had like a severe attack because basically, almost like King Arthur, he's kind of the hippie is kind of saying that Prez was tied to the land, and as the government started to veer away from the direction Prez thought the country should go, he started to physically suffer as a consequence, and then it turned out that ultimately uh, Prez, it's revealed, died. Um, I think he said from brain cancer. Um, yes. And then the, the hippie tells him, look, he said, I'm going to give you some stuff. He says, you're not Prez's son. He said, you're not. Um, but he, he gives him some artifacts, and he also gives him a, a, some peyote. He says, this is the only drug Prez believed in. And he, So then basically PJ goes on a vision quest, and he kind of comes to terms with himself and with his place in the country and what Prez means to him and also with his mother. It, he, the, the book strongly alludes to the fact that his mother was raped possibly by her own father. Um, interested to see what you guys thought of those panels. Um, and he comes to the realization that 
he needs to get his life together and that the most important thing really is to go back to the girl that he ran away from and and that the story ends with him writing a two-page letter to his girlfriend you know asking that he wants to come back and that he's not afraid anymore he's, he wants to try to get his life together so basically sort of meeting Prez's vision quest kind of gives him a sense of purpose for himself and Prez is emphasizing that the most important thing you can do is is take care of yourself as an individual and, and the, the more people that do that the more the, the, the better off the country will be um, it, it ends on a hopeful note, not necessarily for the United States as a whole, but for this young man and his friends and how he's going to try to, you know, get his life back together and, and reassert or maybe assert for the first time his own sense of self and and try to assert what's important, which is, try, which is trying to be actually kind of be, really be a man here and, and go back to, the, to the, the girl who he had run away from. So I love this story. Brubaker, this is this story is 20 years old. And I wonder what Brubaker thinks of it now because this is written very early in his career. So he's probably late 20s, early 30s when he wrote it. Um, what I think is interesting about it is that this is written during the Clinton era, and Brubaker is always t- already talking about you know the impact of corporate power and of insurance companies and just and he's using Prez to talk about how the, the direction he thinks the country is going in and how, and how sick he thinks the country has become and. Reading this now, because I've read it several times since I first got it, it's kind of sad because I think the country, in my personal opinion, is even worse off than it was when this was written. And uh, I think that what Brubaker was talking about through the Perez character is even more relevant now today than it ever was. And I find this book very life-affirming in terms of the individual, but at the same time I also think it's a very sad commentary of – where this country is going and really where in many ways where it's always been but just you know in our in our era I just think that if you just care to look just even a scr- even a scratch below the surface you just see how you know in many ways I think what they're talking about in this book is so much come to pass in, in ways that is anything but positive so I, I think it's a book that if you're very right wing you're, you're going to find this comic obnoxious you're probably not going to like it um, but you know, if, if your politics are more towards the left or if you're just kind of more open-minded about the United States, the history of the country, and if you can get away from the sort of the, you know, shiny, happy, glossy version of our country's history, which is complete, complete nonsense, um, if you're more interested in kind of looking beneath the surface of that, I think this book is, is, is well worth a read. And the artist from Shanauer is gorgeous. I mean, he's a magnificent artist, um, and I, the way he captures these young people and just their – their, their lot in life at this time and kind of how adrift they are and just the fashion of the time. It's all here. And I think this, I mean, it's, this is a damn good one shot. And it's, it's an interesting take on a character that really, I think Prez is an important character because he's so idiosyncratic and DC's bringing him back. Or I think they're bringing him back as a woman actually this time in their, their new relaunch. But I think Brubaker uh, goes a long way in really kind of fleshing out Prez and kind of really sort of giving him a place and, and finding real footing for the character. In, in a way that I think is very relevant and really works. So that's my take on Prez. Smells like Teen President. The Politics and Comics episode was 526, October Thank you, 13th, 2008. Appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you. Anybody else want to go before me on this one? Oh, oh sure. I'll go ahead. Yeah, may I say it, it, it still kills me that I wasn't able to participate in that uh, uh, episode of CGS when we talked about Prez. I think I was uh, marooned in Stone Harbor at the time. And, and on top of that, I hadn't yet collected all the issues of the original early 70s Prez series. But uh, 
Uh, but yes, as you uh, mentioned a few times uh, during your remarks, Chris, which are always uh, you know they're beautifully detailed and well reasoned, and you know betraying your knowledge of uh, American history and politics. Thank which you, is sir. Absolutely superior to mine. I can tell you that right now. But um, you were right when you said that I was uh, familiar with this one shot, and I've uh, you know like you, Chris, I have actually I have read this thing a few times over uh, since I first got it when it was new back in 1995. And I can't say that about every comic in my collection. So you, you, Chris has actually apologized to me a couple of times for having chosen this uh, for his uh, Back to the Bin selection because he knows you know, it's, it's, it's near and dear to my heart, too. Yep. Uh, no need to apologize at all, Chris, because you know, we're all getting to talk about it anyway. So it doesn't <laughs> matter who gets to go first with it. Mm. All right. So Smells Like Teen President. You know, the, the title right there in and of itself, that was enough to sell me on. I thought that was hilarious at the time. You know, it's a Nirvana joke. Smells Like Teen President. Uh, and, uh, it's, you know, as I've said, I, I'm not the history teacher that Chris is, so I, I can't, uh, speak to the, the sociopolitical relevance of it as, as well as he can. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, there are a few important political touchstones here, you know, Brubaker Brubaker seizes on the, uh, the, you know, the invasion of Panama, uh, the whole, you know, the scandal going on there. And, uh, and the comic itself, you know, was published and, and, and is set during, well, it's, 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 it's an, you know, we were talking about how Secret Defenders number 12 was very much a product of its time. This comic is no less so, but uh, in, a, in a different way. You know, the Secret Defender is just uh, uh, is a reflection of uh, certain prevailing trends in the creation of comics at that time. But uh, Prez is more about uh, well, the, the uh, political, economic, and cultural status quo of the mid-90s, which is a, kind of a hotbed of cynicism and cultural pessimism. And, uh, you know, it's, it, I think that the United States was in the middle of an economic recession at that time, you know, not, uh, not, not near as severe a one as we've experienced in the past few years uh, here in the USA. But um, you, you can see some subtle uh, nods in the background to the Clinton-Gore presidency and, uh, you know, the lack of confidence uh, the populace had in it at that particular time. Uh, but as Chris has pointed out, and also correctly, I think, uh, you know, the United States is you know, actually worse off now than it was at the time this comic was published. But um, if you look in the backgrounds, you can see it, you know, on the very first page, there's a Clinton-Gore uh, bumper sticker on the wall of a filthy bathroom that PJ is using. And uh, someone has scrawled on the bottom. It, originally, it said, Clinton-Gore, we know the score. Someone has scrawled over that, we know you're poor. So there's your indication that uh, um, the outlook of uh, much of the American public was not uh, very optimistic at the time this thing was produced, um, and so it's it's it it, it, it is it, 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 it's a '90s sort of story in that it uh, it taps into that. Uh, well, as Chris said, the slacker mentality, although if you go to the inside back cover, Ed Brubaker himself contributes an on-the-ledge uh, essay or editorial, which uh, a lot of writers of Vertigo series would do here in the uh, in, in what is kind of the first phase of Vertigo's evolution. This is only this is 1995, and uh, Vertigo has only existed for a handful of years at this point. Uh, but uh, in this essay, he uh, he goes on record as saying that he's kind of against uh, the use of 90s buzz terms such as slackers and uh, and alternative. Um, but all the same, you, you can see the, the sort of things, the sort of general the mindset things that uh, terms like that uh, were coined to describe, evident as kind of background radiation in the story that uh, Brubaker is telling here. And his main characters are legitimately describable as slackers, as, as Chris did describe them. And, uh, and it's a story about, uh, well, it, 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 it's very obvious the kind of... Uh, 
uh, Generation X style uh, self-absorption and disaffection that uh, the, the main characters, PJ and his two friends, George and Jason, are feeling as they go off on this kind of uh, you know, journey of self-discovery uh, across the United States. Um, and so it's, it, 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 it's, it's a journey of self-discovery for Prez, and uh, I guess he's being used as kind of a well, an everyman figure, you know, like a, a personification of certain traits of his entire generation, as I, I guess uh, Joe Simon intended the original Prez to be as well. Um, and it's, it's, it's a story about how he uh, goes off, experiences uh, some of the well, highs and lows that the United States has to offer, sees uh, the, the, his, uh, his hero figure and father figure um, sort of exploited by uh, his hometown of Steadfast as uh, a, a tourist icon, just uh, something to be uh, well merchandised and cashed in on. So that, that, that ties into 90s cynicism pretty neatly there. The whole encounter with uh, the waitress, Mary, in the small town in Kansas where Prez was supposedly sighted. Um, so he... Uh, her fixation on serial killers, you know, that, that shows you that this is a first-generation Vertigo book. It seems like most of them uh, touched on the fact, you know, the, the idea of a serial killer as a uniquely American phenomenon. You know, Alan Moore did it in Swamp Thing, Neil Gaiman did it in Sandman, and I, I'm pretty sure it happened. There was something in Peter Milligan's uh, Shade the Changing Man onto that effect, and here we have it in in uh, in Prez Vertigo Visions as well. Um, and uh, so it, it's it's kind of you know, as was much of uh, '90s popular culture, steeped in the influence of '70s popular culture as well. You know, Mary is depicted as a collector of Sean Cassidy pictures and uh, uh, Partridge Family memorabilia, and uh, then, of course, you've got Prez himself as a kind of a '70s uh, pop icon. You know, you know, in this reality, you know, to, to us as uh, Earth Prime comic book readers, Prez is just kind of a of, of an image from you know, the, the, the comics of the early Bronze Age, uh, you know, just an attempt by uh, Joe Simon to. Uh, you know, this is the same guy who uh, created Brother Power, the Geek, incidentally, in in the late '60s. It, it's one of a couple of attempts of Mr. Simon to uh, tap into the youth countercultural zeitgeist with uh, mixed results at best. Um, but in this reality, Prez is more than just a pop icon. Although the town of Steadfast would uh, just would have you believe otherwise that he's just you know, something to be merchandised but uh, to prez and his friends he, he was a real historical figure he, he was uh, you know a beacon of hope uh, to a disillusioned united states in the 70s and now here we are in 20 years thence in uh, uh, nearly as disillusioned and cynical uh, 1990s as the people who were born in the 70s are starting to come of age um and, and so it, it's it's uh, it, it, it's it's doing a more realistic job of tapping into that than a comic published in 1973 uh, would have been able to do. But uh, it, it, it's sort of uh, tying it, 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 the peyote hallucination sequence. I think is especially telling. It's, that's it's probably my favorite part of the book, in that it, uh, it it gives Brubaker a chance to go beyond you know the the most realistic mode of storytelling he's been using so far, and uh, do something that's maybe closer to. Uh, well, the kind of storytelling that would have been going on in a similar comic in the early 70s. You know, they, they weren't quite so beholden to realism in those days, obviously. So we get to see uh, well, the, the uh, PJ interact with uh, sort of this hallucination uh, dreamtime version of Prez, showing him uh, this uh, highly surreal and stylized image of uh, Brubaker's idea of exactly what is wrong with uh, the United States in the mid-90s. 
And the whole thing, it's, it, it's, it's a journey of spiritual discovery. As, as Chris said, it, has a, it ends on a, a somewhat hopeful note. You know, you, you Chris, I mean, you know, those are not Chris, but PJ, uh, or Henry, he finally decides to start going by his real given name. You know, the, the, this extended dream of his being, you know, the son of Prez is, is finally put to rest. He understands that he is uh, a spiritual heir of Prez after a fashion, and that's as much uh, of a, a son of Prez as he feels he needs to be. Um, but uh, by the end, he's, uh, he and his friends are driving home again. They, they're looking around. The United States is still in kind of sorry shape. There are people panhandling on the corners. You know, the effects of the economic recession are still evident. But at least uh, one or two young men have uh, been set on a straighter path to their futures by their, exper- their experience uh, going out across the country and uh, literally and figuratively searching for prez all over the place. Uh, the, the prez is kind of this elemental uh, spirit uh, or personification of uh, the you know, the positive spirit of American youth. Uh, and the whole thing is tied up in the absolutely gorgeous art of Eric Shanauer. As, as Chris mentioned earlier, I am a big fan of Mr. Shanauer's artwork. Uh, he did uh, a bunch of uh, Oz comics for first comics back in the 80s uh, that I love absolutely to death. Um, and I've read certain other things that he's drawn over the years, too. I'm still uh, – one of these days I'm going to make time to read his Age of Bronze. It's on my to-do list. Um, but uh, his artwork here is so you know, clean and crisp and detailed. And uh, the fact that it's being applied to you know, such – the dirty, grungy subject matter at times just to just gives kind of a it casts a sheen of surrealism over the entire story, despite the fact that it's supposed to be told in in a, in a fair in a realistic style for the most part. You know, peyote hallucinations aside, um, it's it, it's extremely effective. Just but but then again, I would. Uh, I'd enjoy just about just about anything Shannon was drawing. But let's put it where it's at. So yes, this is. It, it, it's a look and a very alternate uh, kind of alternative, to use another word that Brubaker doesn't like, uh, look at uh, at a 70s comics character. It's its way of, uh, well, you know, it, it, it looks ironic, it's sort of ironic link between uh, 70s culture and 90s culture, which is a favorite theme of mine since I really, I, I like most things about the 1970s. And... And it also speaks to me in that I was, you know, a 16-year-old kid reading this in the mid-90s. Um, so all, all, all told, it's just a very, very effective. It's it, it's great if you're a fan of the Prez character, and it's uh, great if uh, you're a student of the uh, social cultural situation of uh, either the 70s or the 90s. It's it's just a quality read on on a number of different levels. And uh, you know, if you're a Prez fan, just look in the background for little details that Shanaware has slipped in. You know, Chris mentioned the American Indian uh, director of the FBI, Eagle Free. You can see him in the background of one or two flashback panels. Uh, at one point, you can see a miniature model of uh, Prez Rickard's car, which he named Lollipop. Because in Prez number one, he actually, among other things, does a quick stint as a, like a drag racer, and Lollipop is the name of the car he drives there. So there's, uh, it, it's a love letter to the Prez series of the early 70s, and it's also uh, kind of a political statement about the, the mid-90s in its own right. It is kind of dated, in, but, it, but that's all part of the fun. Uh, so yeah, this is a comic that uh, is one of the jewels of my collection, and I thank you, Chris, for for bringing it up to talk about tonight. Of course, brother. And we should mention, uh, there's also a, a photograph when they go to steadfast of Prez posing with Morpheus. The yes, I was going to mention that. Because, <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's Sandman does help Prez in his own book. So right. in, Issue 54, Sandman, as you said. Yeah, yeah, so that's a neat touch as well. Yeah, I, I didn't have this one. And uh, 
Luckily, uh, Adam told me the books you two wanted to cover a while ago because it took us a little while to to manage to get the timing down to do this episode, and I managed to find it in between, so I got a chance to read it, and uh, and I'm, I'm happy that I did. Uh, it, it's the first thing that jumped out at me is I thought this was going to be a reimagining of Prez. I didn't realize it was going to treat Prez as in continuity, and that this was uh, going to be you know twenty twenty some odd years later. Uh, so that's that surprised me a little bit. Uh, it's it's interesting from perspective when the first Prez series came out. I was, you know, being a child of the '60s, I was a preteen when it came out, and thought the idea of a teenage president was the coolest thing ever. And then I'm reading this one as a middle-aged man and thinking, you know, get off my lawn. <laughs> so you know, it, it it definitely you know time has a way of uh, of affecting us uh, politically. Just uh, People who listen regularly probably are aware I am, I wouldn't call myself right wing, but I am somewhat conservative in my views. Uh, I found Brubaker's politics in it to be idealistic, uh, probably somewhat unrealistic in in his thoughts, but not necessarily in a bad way, Uh, but a little bit preachy. So, uh, you know, that's that's maybe that's my political views overpowering me a little bit. But, you know, I, I, I didn't find it offensive in any way. Don't get me wrong. Uh, the story itself, I found it to be kind of an intriguing travelogue. I thought it was kind of just enjoyable to go along with it. I did get the sense going through it that there was no reason that this had to be a mature reader book, that you could have done away with the cursing you could have done away with the actual new, you know, nudity that's in here, or just kind of block it a little bit off so that you don't see it. And it could have been, you know, not all ages, but certainly just a, you know, a, a something for uh, teenagers that that, he, that they could read as opposed to a mature audience. I don't think it needed to be mature. Uh, I agree with you guys 100% about the artwork. I think it's beautiful. I'm really not very familiar with Eric Schanauer, but I think I'd like to seek out more of his work now because I think it's it's really really well done especially when you consider that there is very little in the way of action in here that it, it's it really is just like I said a travelogue um, I, I, I found it to be a very quick read for something as long as this is and not quick in the way of the decompressed story where it's just kind of you feel like nothing actually happens but quick in that it just flowed very very well uh, and it was a satisfying read. I really enjoyed reading it. So while I may, like I said, find the the uh, politics to be a little heavy-handed and, and idealistic, uh, I didn't. That didn't take away from my ability to enjoy the story. And I also managed to feel very nostalgic towards the Prez series while reading it. So I thought that was a big plus as well. Paul, I think you made a good point because I think the idealism and the preachiness is just appropriate for the Prez character, basically, oh, yeah. because. As is the heavy-handedness. Yeah, he's he's such an idealized aspect of you know sort of his view of what America should be that it just and the other point I'd make is I, I get I, I would love to know what Brute Baker thinks of this book now because he wrote yeah I, I'd be interested so in hearing that too ago. I'd be interested to hear what he thought of it. Yeah, but, uh, just just to touch on something that you mentioned in passing, Chris, uh, I think fairly clearly uh, Prez's mother was raped by her father. That's how I took it too. Okay. Yep. As yeah. did I. I, I think it, it's well. It just for anybody, uh, I, I would imagine most people listening do not have this book. Yeah. Uh, as as Prez is 
going through his uh, his, his peyote fueled journey, uh, we we have a flashback. Basically, it starts. It's as if he's watching his mom on TV and she's watching Prez on TV. Oh, this is, this is this is PJ having the, the journey, right? Yeah, excuse me. Yeah, did I say yeah, yeah, Prez? Okay. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, Prez is with him on the journey, but yeah. It's yes, it, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. PJ's why PJ's basically in a grassy meadow, and he's got a, a like a 1970s type television set in front of him, and his he, he's seeing on the TV. He sees his mom watching Prez on the TV, and she's saying right on. And then there's a cut. I assume to her at a slightly older age than what's shown in that photo. And there's an older man grabbing her by the uh, by the arm as she's basically being defiant to him. The next panel shows her as a young girl looking fearful in bed with the silhouette of a man in front of her. And then the last shot, which is the one to me that makes it cl- clear that it, this is a rape situation, uh, it shows her, I guess, again, slightly older than she was in that previous shot, also cowering in fear. But the silhouette looks like he's unzipping his pants. Yes, yes, yeah. And then the next shot shows her sitting in a chair, and it looks like she's pregnant. Yep. So I, I, I think the message is, it's unspoken, but I think it's pretty clear, and it's, it's somewhat chilling to see it, especially with the way the silhouette is in the picture. Yeah, the art, the art is very powerful, um, and it, it, it makes sense in the sense that for a girl to have that traumatic an experience, um, that she would kind of create this fantasy, uh, both for herself and her son. Um, because, you know, he was born with such a horrible – I mean, the, the, you can't think of a more profound betrayal than something as awful as that. So, uh, yeah, the art, the, art is, the art is really tremendous in that page. Man, woof. Yeah, it, it's, it's one of these things that, that uh, you know, maybe it's, it's a weakness of mine. Sometimes when I see things that, that strong and that chilling – I can appreciate the artistic level of it and I can appreciate the uh, the quality – but it's almost like, okay, I never have to see that again for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah, it's good artwork, though, because it does more with less. It doesn't go the tawdry route, which they could have done in Vertigo and shown you something more graphic. It's just the silhouette and, and the gesture of the silhouette. And that's all you really need. I mean, and that's horrifying enough. So. Quite often in art, it's what you don't show as much as what yep. you do. Well, and, then, and it also goes to the, the adage of show, don't tell. Yeah. Where, where they're, they're leaving it, you know, I mean, again, I think it's fairly, the message is fairly clear, but they're still leaving it to your imagination. And sometimes yeah. your imagination is more upsetting and frightening than what they could show you. Sure. But uh, I, I, I'm, I'm very happy that you got me to seek out this book. It's, it's uh, you know, it's same as last time. You got, got two books that I'm really, uh, really happy that you brought to the table here. Oh, thank you, sir. Appreciate that. Well, I was able to find a picture of, um, I guess, Boss Smiley. Boy, that's a freaky-looking picture. <laughs> Scary-looking character. I have not read the original Prez series. It, it does sound intriguing, um, and there is a couple shots of the interior art. I mean, l- listening to your guys' description of it, uh, it does it does sound a little preachy, but I understand what they're going for. I mean, uh I stepped out right when you were describing your your stance on politics, Paul. And for me, with politics and comics, I, I've never been a big fan of it. Just because when I got in, into comics, one of the reasons I got into comics when I when I was younger was because I didn't really want to be in the real world mm-hmm. and didn't want a lot of those things brought up to me. 
So well, I still, yeah. So still to this day, I sometimes, a lot of times, political books, or even if there's a political character, or you know, I don't want the real world in my comics. That's just my own personal thing. And I know more and more, it seems like they get more and more realistic or draw more on from real world events. So I mean, that's just just kind of where I'm at with that. Uh, I kind of got thrown off my my game with the with the stalking and killing of the bug. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, just, just to add to that, like I, I find the thing about politics and comics that somewhat bothersome to me, uh, is often the writer will present their own political views and agenda in a very uneven manner. They, they, they don't try to be even handed. They don't try to accept the fact that somebody might have a different view than them. Uh, and that's the thing that I find bothersome sometimes. Yeah, I don't think yes, that this comic necessarily has that because it doesn't, as 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 strong of a message as it is, it doesn't seem to be pro anyone. Hmm. Well, I think I think it's I think I think it's really just pro. It's pro the individual. I think it's pro being good to yourself, and in doing that, you're being good to the rest of the country. Um, and, and no, I, I get it, that. Yeah. What 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 I mean is is I don't think it's partisan politically. I don't think it's necessarily saying, oh, Republicans are bad and Democrats are good. I think he's saying, no, all politicians are bad. Oh, well, I would oh, agree uh, with that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> no, I, I agree with that, too. Um, I, I think, I think though, the if you – because we've all read it or, or most of us have read it, um, it, it's definitely – the comments he's making about corporate America and insurance companies and the invasion of Panama, you know, if you let's, – let's put it this way. If you're a hardcore George Bush supporter, you're not going to like that. So, you know. There's, I, I think there's definitely a tilt in this, I, 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 but I agree it's not that over the top. Um, now I'm seeing the, the grinning face of Ronald Reagan here on page 52. <laughs> but um, well, yeah, and uh, that looks like that's like George George H W Bush beneath. Is that Oliver North? I'm not sure there. But um, uh, well, you you got uh, oh my God, who is that? Yeah, it looks like Oliver North at the front, then Ronald Reagan, George Bush, and then in the middle. It looks like the kid from A Christmas Story. <laughs> or or I would say Karl Rove, but he wasn't a major figure yet in the public consciousness, so I doubt it's supposed to be him. Um, interesting. But Unless that's supposed to be Jimmy Carter and not a... Uh, no, it's got to be Oliver nah, North, right? Yeah, I, I think it's... Know. The one on the left has got to be Oliver North. And then it says, guns supplied by, the, by white men over drugs brought into the country by our own government. Yeah, it's got to be the Iran-Contra that he's talking about. Yeah, so... But yeah, I, I think I think if I agree with you, I think if he if he had gone too heavy attacking one party versus another, it kind of would have defeated I think a lot of the spirit of the book. You know, it's I think Prez is supposed to be in the way he's perceived here is kind of being above the petty corruption of, of, of our two party system. Um, and again, I go back to kind of this Arthurian idea that you know he's he kind of linked to the land, and if the country suffers. You know, he, he suffers with it, and ultimately he died as a consequence. Yeah, they, oh, they clearly had that message in there yeah, when, with so. him dying of brain cancer as the yeah. country's going bad. Yeah. And there's even uh, – in, in that same page that you're talking about, isn't, isn't that effectively his brain uh, that they're flying past at the bottom of that particular page with lesions on it and it's bleeding? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I, I would assume so. And as they're seeing things that are wrong in the country, that's the image yeah. they have. Well, actually, they're saying it's 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 a heart. Oh, that's his heart. Oh, okay. This is the heart of America. It keeps pumping even if it can never win. This heart is also yours. Even when things seem doomed, you don't give up. So there you go. It's Prez is the spirit of youthful American idealism. So 
Yeah, is it, I definitely dig what you're saying about this being kind of preachy and uh, idealistic, maybe even a little naive. And, uh, and I, I think I agree with Chris that uh, Brubaker might have some things to say about this if uh, his present self were to revisit it. You know, I think little, he might be a little more subtle. Yeah. His political views are probably a little more sophisticated by this point in time. He's, he's done a little more uh, writing on political themes, too. But, yes, yeah, for, for Perez, as Chris said, I think it's it's the appropriate tone to take. I should also point out as a fun aside that our own Adam Murdo was Prez for Halloween one year. That is correct. And oh. we have the we have the photographs to prove it, and boy, it's it's a chilling spit image. I mean that in the best possible way. I don't believe you. I've ever seen those. I think I've that might be amusing, those. but I'm always brought to the pictures I saw, I guess, on Facebook of uh, U.S. Jericho. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I had yeah. to actually expand my sideburns for that. <laughs> <laughs> That seems to be the costume that you were born to to wear. (laughs) That's destiny achieved then. (laughs) You can only go down from there, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, uh, Chris, how how would you rank this one? Oh, um, I'd give this an A all around. I love this story. I think the the, what is it? Cover, interior art and story. Is that is that the the categories? Yeah. Yeah. uh, I'd I'd give the, the cover an A. Um, interior art, very much an A. Um, I'd give the story an A because I've I've read this probably three or four times since I got it, you know, several years ago, and it still really holds up for me. I I, I really think it's an outstanding. It's really hard to do a one shot and make it effective. You know, that that's an art in itself, and I think this book does that. So I'd give it an A. All right, Adam. Straight A's for me, too. No question about it. Yeah, the cover is very memorable. You know, the giant uh, larger-than-life image of Prez standing there posing jauntily and uh, then PJ standing on t- it's <laughs> in his plaid flannel standing on top of the old boat with the Nirvana and Dinosaur Jr. bumper stickers with newspaper headlines of poverty and terror and other 90s ills blowing past on the breeze. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's an image that stuck with me. Over the years, I've already, you know, uh, gushed about the artwork enough. The story is great on many levels. It's yeah, a a a a. Okay, I'm I'm slightly less enamored than you guys, but I, I despite the fact that I did really enjoy it. Uh, one question about the cover before I rank it is uh, the two lights by the background image of Prez by his mouth. Do you, what what exactly is that supposed to be there? I think that's uh, it's just there to give his mouth definition, I guess. If, if you look at that with the shadowing around there and then like the circle that's kind of formed by his cheeks, it almost looks like the alien head from the Corbomite Maneuver episode of Star Trek. Oh, God, you're right, Paul. You're totally right. <laughs> it's it's just I just keep like my eyes are drawn to that ever since I, I had that thought and I can't stop looking at that. Uh I, do I think the cover, the cover is compelling. It's, yeah, it's it does. Very... I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I see what you're saying. But yeah, I think it is there just for debt. Uh, yeah, it does look like two eyes, but I think it is just for debt for for some debt, you know, to be because it's a picture. Or at least I believe this is a picture. The whole thing's a picture. From, I think it's a uh, painting. From the image that I have. It, is it a painting? I think it's painted. Hmm. I can't say that 100%, but it looks to be painted to me. Hmm. Uh, okay, sorry, sorry to interrupt. That's okay. Uh, I, I, I think it's a pretty compelling picture, and, and certainly anybody who has any uh, insight into the previous rendition of Prez, I think, would be intrigued looking at the cover. So uh, not only is it well-drawn, but I think it would serve its purpose to 
entice entice buyers to be interested in it. Uh, so for me, I, I'd say a solid B, not quite an A, but but a solid B. The interior art, I think, is beautiful. And as I said, I'm not really familiar with Eric Shanoa, but I really want to see more. Uh, I think it's incredibly well done. And I, I totally agree with you guys that I give the interior art an A. Uh, Story-wise, again, I think there's some points where it's a little preachy, a little naive at some points. Uh, I think it's an ambitious effort, and I think a lot of it pays off. But I do think there's a couple of points where it kind of falls a little short. So I'm going to say B on the interior on the story as well for an overall B+. Um, from what I can see of the interior art with some of the pictures that I got, it does seem pretty detailed. Um, what else has this artist done? Eric Sh- Sh- uh, Sh- Shanauer. I guess I could have looked that up, but I didn't. Uh, well, uh, he's done a bunch of um, Wizard of Oz-related comics uh, as both a writer and artist. Uh, he is uh, the writer of the adaptations of L. Frank Baum's Oz stories that Marvel's been publishing lately with uh, Scotty Young as the artist. Mm. Uh, but there was a series of comics in the 80s he did. They're original Oz stories, uh, both written and drawn by himself. Um, he does something called Age of Bronze, which came out uh, from Image. It was kind of a long-running series about uh, ancient Greece. Um mm-hmm. Um, and beyond that, uh, uh, he, uh, he's written the, uh, the recent Little Nemo comics that IDW has been putting out, but again, uh, he's not providing the artwork for that. Mm. Uh, but, uh, yeah, there, there haven't been that many, uh, lengthy runs of artwork that, uh, he's produced that I could point to for you, but uh, I guess the, the biggest would probably be, uh, Age of Bronze and his body of, uh, Oz work from the 80s. Mm. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I, I do like, uh, from what I can see, and it looks very detailed. So um, I I have to give the give the the interior an A as well. And the cover is pretty cool looking. Uh, if that's a painting, that is that is a very beautiful painting. Um, that too, uh, I will give that an A. Eh, go into my leanings of not really liking politics in my comics. I'm gonna just bump down the interior uh, story to a B. Maybe if I could actually read the whole thing, I might feel a little differently. Uh, but that's where I'm going to leave it for now. So overall, it's still an A book. All right. Good deal. All right. We're, we're, we're running a little long, so I'm going to jump right into our third book because if, if you guys weren't special guests, I'd say, all right, we've done enough. We'll do this one another day. But uh, who knows when I'm going to get you back on. So I want to – If Scott Gardner were here, you'd cut him off at the legs. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but but for, for Chris and Adam, as long as I can keep them on the line, I'm going to do it. Honored, sir. And uh, so I'm going to jump in. Now, my book is also a Vertigo, so technically DC published it. But since it takes place in its own world. I have uh, this one. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> since it takes place in its own world, I'm considering it the indie for today. And it's Why the Last Man, number one, which was released on in well with a cover date of September of 2002 with a cover price of $2.95. The cover is by J.G. Jones, and the background has a big Y with chemical diagrams and a DNA helix in front of it. And in the foreground, there's a young man crouched down in a straitjacket with a capuchin monkey on his shoulder. So I would say certainly right off the bat, you're intrigued by the cover as to what the heck is this all about. The title of our story is Unmanned, and it's written by Brian K. Vaughan, penciled by Pia Guerra, inked by Jose Mars. I'm sorry, uh, reading reading my own notes. Marzan Jr., colored by Pamela Rambo, lettered by Clem Robbins, and edited by Heidi McDonald and Zachary Rao. 
The story opens up in Brooklyn, my stomping grounds, where a blood-covered woman is in a panic and running to a policewoman, saying that her boys are sick and throwing up blood. The officer appears to be kind of disassociated and tells her that it's the men. All the men are dead, and she puts a gun to her temple. We cut back 29 minutes earlier to Yorick, the hero of our tale, who is in a straitjacket and hanging upside down from some inversion boots as he's speaking to his girlfriend, Beth. She's off hiking in a bra and short shorts in Australia. They're discussing cutting-edge things such as whether Elvis had a twin brother that died at birth and how fate impacts the course of your life. The conversation turns to the fact that Yorick is still looking for, a, for work a year after he graduated. And while the conversation is underway, he escapes from the straitjacket. The call is interrupted by a call from Yorick's mother. And we cut to Washington, D.C., where Yorick's mother is a congresswoman. And she's talking to Yorick and then approached by a senator to discuss a vote about foreign aid to what she says is an organizations that perform abortions. They argue a little bit, and then we cut back to Yorick's phone call with Beth. While they talk, Ampersand, Yorick's capuchin monkey, starts to throw feces at him, which I found to be just fun because who, who, who doesn't love a monkey throwing feces? <laughs> then we cut to Nablus on the West Bank, 18 minutes before the beginning of our story, where native Palestinians are at odds with the military and being followed by a TV crew. Cut back to Beth and Yorick again, and quickly cut to Al Karik. Jordan, where Dr. Frozen Hamad is contacted by an American woman there to help her to escape. But Dr. Hamad says she doesn't want to, and they discuss an amulet that she's wearing that is somehow the key to attempts that have been made on her life. And as they talk, she's shot and killed. The American agent kills the attackers and then sends a message to the President of the United States. We're cutting back again to Yorick and Beth. And as Yorick is pouring his heart out to her, she says she has something important to tell him, but she doesn't get the chance. Then we cut from there to Boston, Massachusetts, seven minutes before our story begins. We join a woman in labor coming into a hospital. The woman is named Dr. Mann. She's a Harvard professor and basically indicates that she's the baby's mother and father because the baby is apparently her clone. We cut to Yorick's sister named Hero. She's an EMT and she's getting it on with an ambulance in, in an ambulance with a fireman when her mother calls and they get an emergency call and start to uh, move out back to Beth and Yorick. Yorick stops Beth from making a statement and quickly proposes to her over the phone. Before we get an answer, we get a cut between all the pending scenes in a countdown style when just as the clone of Dr. Mann is born, all the men in the world, all the males in the world, including animals, except for Yorick and Ampersand, die, with blood coming from their eyes, noses, mouths, and ears. And at this point, we see a montage of the tragedy across the world. We see Dr. Mann say it's all her fault, and we end up with a close-up shot of Yorick basically cluing us into the fact that, despite the fact that all the men are dead, he's still alive. And I thought this was an incredibly compelling beginning to... What don't, I don't spoil anything. I haven't read the whole series yet. I want to get <laughs> well, that. I'm going to talk about the series as a whole, uh, as a whole, without without giving spoilers. Okay. And then we'll go back to critiquing this individual issue. But just just from an individual point of view, I thought this again was an incredibly compelling beginning to the journey. It has that prologue feeling to it, but not in that 
that decompressed way where you don't feel like anything's happening. There is so much happening in the story that it's just, you know, it, it's, it's a lot, it's mind boggling how much is going on. And yet it's not hard to follow the story at all. It almost seems like it should be difficult to follow. Uh, the, the, the art is really, really well done. I think it's very, very simple, very clean style, uh, but real easy to follow. The story is as smooth as it cuts along. It, it has a cinematic feel to it uh, that I think, you know, there's been talk about turning this into a TV series or a series of movies basically since it first came out. And I'm surprised to this point, especially with the success of comic book on tele- comic books on television right now, that they haven't moved towards putting this together. I think this would make an excellent companion piece to The Walking Dead, really. Um, just... So much good stuff. And then the story, and again, I don't want to do any spoilers on it, but the story runs over 60 issues and hits on all sorts of political things and the world, you know, in its dystopian way, trying to find its legs and the different types of groups of women who form and and form various allegiances and various groups trying to basically reconstruct government in many ways, while they're also seeking out the cure for this death of all the men, because obviously without males and females, we can't have procreation and the world will be doomed at that point. So there's a lot going on here. I think this, this in one, whatever it is, 30 page or so issue, he set in motion so many different wheels uh, for things to go on. And it was, again, a dense read, but a very, very fast, dense read. Uh, I, I think this is the beginning of a great series. And I'm curious what you guys think of it. Adam, go ahead. Well, okay. I've, I think I've probably read the least of this series of anyone participating in this discussion because I've read nothing but this first issue. Um, I have the first uh, trade here. It's been one of many, many, many things I've had sitting around my apartment for ages without being read. Uh, but I took this as an opportunity, since you, Paul, chose to talk about it here, to pick it up and uh, read at least the first story. And I have read no further than that. So I, I, I add my voice to Bill in uh, thanking you for uh, not uh, you know, spoiling much of anything here. Um, but yeah, I absolutely agree, Paul, that this is far from decompressed storytelling. This is just, just chock-a-block with all kinds of different uh, you know, plot threads and the, all kinds of different characters being thrown out here. Of course, uh, maybe a third of them end up dead by the end of the issue, but still. Um, yeah, just uh, lots of irons being put into the fire in this first issue. We're being introduced to uh, uh, the, uh, oh, let's see, the, the Israeli uh, patrol woman. And uh, you know her her story begins there. Uh, we we meet uh, Yorick Brown himself, of course, and his monkey ampersand, his mother, his sister hero, uh, and uh, Doctor Man. You know, the, the, the tantalizing revelation that somehow what's going on is all her fault. I'm I'm, I'm sure that uh, there's a lot more to be said about that in future issues. Um, but just yeah, it's just a, a, a great dramatic opening. Uh, to uh, a story that's going to apparently be going on on many fronts across the global stage and lots of different uh, stories to be told in this uh, brave new dystopian world that's established here. Um, so, yeah, it's a, a hell of a cliffhanger, of course. So yeah, it's a, it, it, it does, as you said, Paul, have that uh, introductory feel. And I can only think that people picking this up off the shelf uh, back in – or off the rack back in uh, 2002 uh, – uh, I can't see how you could have resisted uh, picking up the second issue after a, a setup like this. Um, 
uh, the, the, the main character, Yorick Brown, I'm, I'm pleased to say that I found him very easy to relate to and probably would have found him even easier to relate to had I been reading this back in 2002 when I myself had been out of college for about a year and I too was an English major with uh, uh, moderate to poor computer skills. <laughs> and I, I, I wasn't training myself to do stage magic, and I hadn't adopted a monkey. But uh, other than that, <laughs> uh, yeah, Yorick uh, and I are going to be seeing eye to eye as this series progresses. I get the feeling. Wow, and, you could have had merge, merge monkey Mephisto. <laughs> <laughs> Murdered his magical monkey. Now, one of the things I, I can say with, again, it's fairly spoiler-free, is the character of Yorick I found as I read this series, and I did read it to its conclusion, but I found him to be particularly compelling because he's not Indiana Jones, even though he is, as they show in this issue, an escape artist and all. He, he's far from perfect in his decision-making, uh, and, and he becomes a very relatable character from page one on, even though he is a somewhat eccentric character with, again, his escape uh, artist uh tricks that he's doing plus his capuchin monkey you know it's not those aren't things that the average person can relate to but his personality is very very easy to relate to yeah so uh, i guess we can see brubaker setting him up here as uh, the kind of character you would uh, maybe least expect to, to thrive in a, a post-apocalyptic world but, uh, but but then he gets a chance to surprise us over time is is, is that fair to say paul uh, well, there are definitely surprises that come up around. I, I, like I said, I don't want to. I don't want to go too deeply into it. But he, let's just say, he gets into a lot of different situations, uh, some of his own doing, and some not so much, and and has to, you know, has to get through them. Mm-hmm. He does run somewhat of a gauntlet as this goes on. Yeah, uh, I've, this should. I've only gotten. I think I've read the first four issues, so I won't mention anything for Murd's sake as to what goes on. Yeah, my thanks, Bill. Mm-hmm. As a general rule throughout this series, uh, in very, very similar fashion to the Walking Dead comic book, the books pretty much almost always end on some form of a cliffhanger. And that, that, would... make, that makes it, as soon as you put one down, you want to pick up the next. <laughs> are, you, are you done, Adam? I don't want to intrude. Uh, well, one more thing. You know, it's... Sure. Uh, introduced to a compelling cast of characters here and a cool mystery established, but just the the way the story is told, too, the the jumping around in time between Brooklyn now, Brooklyn 29 minutes ago, and then jumping across the globe to uh, Israel and Jordan, and just just the the way that the story seems to be kind of unstuck in time and is, uh, as you said, Paul, counting down. Uh, not at any you know, regular pace, you know. It, it, it's just jumping back and forth a little bit, but it, it it helps to build the suspense very effectively. You, you can tell that we're we're ticking down to some kind of uh, major cataclysmic occurrence, and when it happens, you know, it it's, it has impact for that. So it's it, it's a very well done uh, first issue to this series, and uh, of course, as, as we've said, I, I'm not sure exactly what shape this series is going to take in future issues, but uh, it's it it does, as we like to say on the CGS, it does the work of a of a first issue well, and it. it piques our interest and makes you want to come back for more and I don't think it's going to be too many more days before I just go ahead and devour the remaining four issues of this trade paperback. All right, now Chris I know this is a favorite series of yours so have at it. Indeed brother, thank you and again having read the whole thing like Paul I'm not going to spoil anything Um, a few things to say right off the bat if you want to get someone into reading comics who has never really read them or is not really into superheroes and they think all comics are superhero comics there's certain books you give them. This is one of them. Um, 
everyone I, I've introduced Why the Last Man to has demanded every trade as soon as they finish the first one, and they devour it. Uh, I think it's one of the best comic books of the past 15 years. I think Brian K. Vaughn is one of the best writers working in comics, period. I, I called him in the same class as I would an Alan Moore or Neil Gaiman. Um, when you think of the diversity of his ability, he's done this book, Runaways, Ex Machina, and now Saga. Each one is completely different, and each one I- I- is outstanding. And this, I, I can't agree with you more about Yorick because he is such an anti-hero. He's not the typical type of character you'd think would have to shoulder the future of the human race, basically. And that's what makes him all the more compelling. He's such a relatable character. You know people like Yorick. Maybe you yourself are Yorick, minus the monkey and the escape artistry. And uh, you know the, the geopolitical aspects of the story, um, the various female characters, and some of them have been introduced yet. I won't spoil. And you know their own personal struggles as they try to come to grips with this new this new world order, so to speak. Uh, it's you know you mentioned Walking Dead and. It's funny, and our we just did a CGS episode, and Pants had me comment because I, I got I dumped Walking Dead because I just thought the book got stupid, frankly. Um, this book never gets stupid because Brian K. Vaughn is one of the master writers in comics, and what's great about his work is he knows when to end a book. Mm-hmm. Why the Last Man has an ending. Ex Machina has an ending. Saga will have an ending. That's why they're great. That's why they're going to remember some of the finest books of the early 21st century in the comic book medium. So I, anybody who wants to try a new book, you just go out, don't think, just buy the first trade of Why the Last Man. You will not be disappointed, and you'll want all the rest. So I'm thrilled you picked this, Paul, because this is this is one of the finest titles in the, in the first two decades of the 21st century, without question. I, I would totally agree with what you said. And I, I, think, I think you're right on the money with the fact that the fact that he kept this to 60 issues is what kept it going and made it never lose its steam. Absolutely. If he had tried to, to make this an ongoing that was going to just go indefinitely, sooner or later it would have lost its focus. I agree. And I also think, I th- I, like, like you said, if, in terms of multimedia, I hope HBO gets their hands on this if, if Vaughn allows it because he owns it, so it's up to him. Um, and you know, Obviously he knows best, but I ho- if they do put this on TV or film, I just hope they do it justice. Um, I think it has to be a long-form story, much like The Walking Dead TV show is, in order to do it justice. I agree with you, absolutely. And just just uh, for what it's worth, it's uh, take me two minutes. There's a, a text piece at the end of the story that I think just adds to the intriguing nature of the story. It says, welcome to the unmanned world. In the summer of 2002, a plague of unknown origin destroyed every last sperm, fetus, and fully developed mammal with a Y chromosome and the apparent exception of one young man and his male pet. This gendercide instantaneously exterminated 48% of the global population, or approximately 29 billion men. 495 of the Fortune 500 CEOs are now dead, as are 99% of the world's landowners. In the United States alone, more than 95% of all commercial pilots, truck drivers, and ship captains died, as did 92% of violent felons. Internationally, 99% of all mechanics, electricians, and construction workers are now deceased, though 51% of the planet's agricultural labor labor force is still alive. 14 nations, including Spain and Germany, have women soldiers who have served in ground combat units. None of the United States' nearly 200,000 female troops have ever participated in ground combat. 
Australia, Norway, and Sweden are the only countries that have women serving on broad on on board submarine submarines. Excuse me. In Israel, all women between the ages of 18 and 26 have performed compulsory military service in the IDF for at least one year and nine months. Before the plague, at least three Palestinian suicide bombers had been women. Worldwide, 85% of the government representatives are now dead, as are 100% of Catholic priests, Muslim imams, and Orthodox Jewish rabbis. And I think that sets up the geopolitical ramifications that you were talking about, Chris, that run through this series for the entire 60 issues. Because the story... I mean, obviously, York and his his journey is, and the other characters who who are part of that is the main focus. But they also focus upon what the different countries are and governments are doing because they they're trying to get a handle on this and also trying to do what they can to keep the human race going. So, um, and the 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 Israeli soldier who appeared in that first issue, she becomes a very important character in the book. Um, so, it, it's it's a classic. And basically, Yorick is our point of view character. Exactly. Uh, but the story isn't just focused on him; it's focused no. on the world. Yeah. So it's it's just mm. it's it's a, a tremendous concept, and then well executed. Well, that, you made a good point because, like you, you and Adam said, there's a lot going on in that first issue. In the hands of a lesser creator, it would have been very messy. But you're dealing with Brian K. Vaughan, and let's not forget how great uh, is it Pia Guerra, right? Yes. Yeah, the, I mean the art is magnificent, and that's that is the artist through the entire book. So you ha- you have this continuity uh, of style throughout the entire series uh, as well. So I don't know if there are any fill-ins. I want to say there weren't, but don't quote me on that. But um, I don't believe there were. Not that I yeah, can recall, at least. Yeah. So this is a, this is a concept that could have easily fallen flat in the hands of a lesser creative team, but not not here. This is. Does oof. JG Jones do all the covers? Yeah, I think he does. Because uh, I. I love his work on other things like 52, at least <laughs> <laughs> throw out another shout for pants there. Um, <laughs> he needs all the shots we can give him. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to make this really, really simple, and I'm going to go with what you guys did on uh, Prez and say, as far as I'm concerned, A-A-A for an overall A. <laughs> oh, I, I hear here on that. I couldn't agree more. But, Paul, for for you, wouldn't that be A-A-R-P? <laughs> <laughs> or, or as Bugs but I, Bunny would say, it it would be a. <laughs> oh, you with the jokes? That's me. Jokes are my department, buddy. <laughs> Sorry for stepping on your toes. That's he does okay. have a he does have a toilet lid on his head, so you know that's that right. True, and I know how to use it. <laughs> I'm just curious if anybody, if I have any dissenters on that. Oh no, no, sure. no! It's I have all all A's for what I've read for uh, the the three issues that I've read past this, you know, that's, I, I, I'm trying to remember how I broke away from it, uh, because I've got most of the run. I, I don't know why I stopped. Maybe something shiny went by. I, I, I had a bug to kill some cat vomit to clean up perhaps not <laughs> quite sure what happened, but I'm going to need to dig back and, 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 uh, whatever I don't have, uh, I'll send you to wild pig to go get for me, Paul. That works for me. <laughs> Honored. And I would recommend if – I'm sorry, Adam. You didn't give your rating yet. Go ahead. I'm no, sorry. No, we're unanimous here. It's okay. A's across the board. I would recommend if you enjoy this, definitely check out uh, Brubaker's Ex Machina, which you did with the great Starman artist Tony Harris. Um, it's what if, a, what if a former superhero becomes the mayor of New York City. Br- Brubaker or Vaughn? Uh, Vaughn? I'm sorry, Vaughn. Did I say Brubaker? Okay. I'm, I yeah. meant Vaughn. I apologize. Um, thanks for correcting me. And uh, – 
it's it's just as riveting as Wild Last Match, just, but it's obviously completely different. Um, but talk about Brubaker's command of just po- – I said it again, Brubaker. Vaughn's command of, uh, of uh, politics and just the, the dynamics and the infrastructure of New York City. And oh, that's another book I think you'll, you'll really enjoy. And that's and one it, I, I've never gotten around to and I do need to, to and, read. And it's, and it's also done. The, 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 all the trades are out. The series is over. So I highly recommend that too. All right, great. I'm, I'm glad you guys enjoyed this one as much as you did. Uh, I'm just going to throw out there for the listeners, if you are not familiar with Comic Geek Speak, I'm surprised. But you should certainly seek out our two guests on their show, Comic Geek Speak, which is just probably the uh, the premier comic book podcast out there. Uh, so, And I hear you guys are going possibly delving into video as well. Yes, uh, one of our fabled founders, uh, Brian Deemer, is, he, like he said, his mind's like a shark. It's always moving for new ideas. And he uh, he's getting together uh, video equipment because he wants to also put the show on YouTube, and we're all for it. So oh, very that's gonna, cool. That's, that's in his capable hands. So at some point down the road, I'm sure that will happen. So. Yep, he's uh, put his mind to it, and he's already trying to uh, amass the equipment and is actually – I'll put the word out to the listeners to you know, donate something to defray his costs. So he's he he's committed to this. It's going to happen one way or the other. So soon like, you'll you'll see our smiling faces on YouTube. I'm going to look forward to that. And when Brian Deemer commits to something, it's as inexorable as a force of nature. Nothing will stop it. It will happen. <laughs> so, but I'm I'm going to take the uh, the pimping other shows a step further because if this show ends up on the CGS feed as a guest appearance, as, as the last time you guys were on did. And people like Bill and I and our insights into comics, you should seek us out on Two True Freaks Presents Back to the Bins. So I'm pimping myself as well as you on this please, one. Please do, sir. We're all about pimping. Go for it. It's just a big pimp-a-palooza. That's, that's what I, it's what I do best. Yep. I'm going to help you and as procurer also, because uh, this episode will definitely appear on the CGS feed. So... All of CGS Dumb is hearing these words right now, and I would encourage them to do as you suggest and check out Two True Freaks Presents Back to the Bins. Here, here. But uh, I, I thank you guys very much for coming on with me again. I, I enjoy having the opportunity to speak to you very, very much, and hopefully we can uh, continue to do this every once in a while. Paul, send an invitation. As soon as we can clear our schedules, we'll be there again. I think I speak for Adam in that case. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Make this an annual tradition, just like the old JLA-JSA team. Fire up transmatter cube and talk to back to the bins. Sounds good to me. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Thank yes, you. It was nice to meet you guys finally. Ah, uh, you too, Bill. And I'll let you get back to your toilet lid. <laughs> and your insect. <laughs> yes. And oh, yes. Uh, uh, Adam, I will no doubt talk to you soon, brother. Oh, yes. Soon and repeatedly. Indeed. Take care, gentlemen. Have a good night. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com 
and is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com slash league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Yeah, what are we able to do? Uh, yeah, okay. uh.